0: another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but we'll explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So hire some detectives, start beating the bushes for a window peeper, and get ready for the next twisted episode of Murdered in Their Beds. Attorney Horace Havner and County Attorney Oscar Winstrom had a dilemma on their hands after the murder indictment against Reverend Kelly was returned by the Montgomery County Grand Jury. The problem was how to find the strange little man. Kelly's journey across the region was later documented, but at the time, there was no trace of him. It was later discovered that he was preaching in Sutton, Nebraska on the day the indictment was handed down, but he soon left town. He wasn't trying to hide, though, because he had no idea that anyone was looking for him. He was simply traveling from church to church looking for places that would tolerate his bizarre behavior long enough for him to get paid for delivering a sermon or two. Horace Havner recruited an agent named Theodore Passwater to find Kelly. He gave him instructions on how to track him down, but he told him not to arrest him until he received orders to do so. Passwater went to work and was soon on Kelly's trail. He found that he'd left Nebraska and then gone to St. Louis. Passwater got on the first train to St. Louis, not realizing that James Wilkerson had beaten him there. Wilkerson did not know that Passwater was also looking for Kelly, but he did know the state was looking for the little man thanks to his contact in the grand jury. His plan was to find the preacher and then make sure he had a lawyer to represent him. We have no idea what Wilkerson's motive for this was, other than to foul up the prosecution and make sure that no one else was convicted for the murders that didn't fit his conspiracy against Frank Jones. Anyway, Wilkerson found Kelly in St. Louis, told him about the indictment, and then spirited him out of St. Louis to the small southern Illinois town of Alto Pass, where he could hide out. Passwater was an excellent investigator, though, and tracked Kelly to a boarding house in Alto Pass on May 1st. He had no idea that Wilkerson was mixed up in the chase. He got a room in Alto Pass and waited for orders. By May 4th, Passwater was still cooling his heels in his hotel room while Wilkerson was busy coaching Kelly on what to do next. That afternoon, Wilkerson shipped the preacher's luggage to a storage warehouse in Kansas City. He paid the bill in case anyone came looking for it and signed the Express Company's receipt, F.F. Jones, which leads me to believe that Wilkerson was planning a new trap for the former Iowa senator. On May 9th, Passwater wrote to Havner. He was impatient and bored and was tired of knowing Kelly's location and not being able to act on it. Havner wrote back and assured him that it would not be much longer and added that Passwater would be given credit for the arrest in hopes this might ease the agent's irritation. Kelly's arrest would attract considerable attention thanks to the magnitude of the crime he'd be charged with, and Passwater decided to be patient. But unfortunately, the agent's boredom got the better of him, and on May 10th, he missed Kelly when Kelly suddenly left town. He didn't realize it until late in the day. The preacher had left no forwarding address at the boarding house where he'd been staying. Unknown to Passwater, Wilkerson had realized the agent was in town. He got Kelly onto the next train and arranged for a lawyer to be waiting for them in Omaha. A.L. Sutton agreed to represent Kelly during the proceedings to come. Sutton had been a candidate for the Nebraska governor's office and was known as a skilled but bombastic defense attorney. Wilkerson had contacted him soon after he'd located the minister, but nothing happened quickly. If Iowa did have an indictment against Kelly, the state was certainly taking its time to find him. Sutton thought it was simply a stall for time to prepare for trial, but Wilkerson's inner circle speculated, of course, that the state's motives were more sinister. Once a grand jury handed down an indictment, the jury could not indict anyone else until the accused stood trial. Even if Wilkerson provided some actual evidence against Frank Jones, the grand jury couldn't indict him until Kelly was tried. Wilkerson undoubtedly pressed this theory on his followers as the reason for supporting Kelly and helping him to find an attorney. He didn't want to see an innocent man suffer, he told them, for the sins of Frank Jones. However, his motives were almost surely not that pure. Thwarting Havner's case would be a spit of small revenge for the embittered detective, and it's clear that Wilkerson would do anything to keep his name in the newspapers. Becoming a part of the Kelly investigation from either side would certainly serve his purpose. Regardless of why Kelly had not been arrested, Sutton decided the best thing for his client was for him to turn himself in, get the facts of the case, and then move for a speedy trial. Wilkerson helped the minister and his wife get their affairs in order, and then they traveled together to meet with Sutton. The news that he had been indicted should not have come as a surprise to Kelly, who had been telling people for years that the authorities were after him for the murders. He agreed to take Sutton's advice and returned to Montgomery County. The party arrived in Red Oak on Monday morning, May 16th. When the Kellys and their attorney walked into Oscar Winston's office, he was taken by surprise. News that Kelly had been indicted a few weeks earlier was a closely guarded secret. The last time that Winston had heard from Havner, a state agent was watching the minister in a small Illinois town, and Havner was going to have him arrested when the time was right. Now the suspect was standing in his office. He asked the group to take a seat, put out a call for Sheriff Dunn and then fumed while telephone operators tried to track him down. Dunn was eventually found in the eastern part of the county but couldn't get back to Red Oak until afternoon. Finally, more than six hours after arriving in town to give himself up, four hours of which were spent waiting in the county attorney's office, the man charged with Iowa's most infamous mass murder was taken into custody. Havner was shocked by the news of Kelly's surrender and was enraged when he learned of Wilkerson's role in the debacle. The state was not ready to have the minister arrested, let alone take him to trial. So Havner decided to engage in some dirty tricks of his own. He put together a shockingly detailed statement about Kelly's arrest for the newspapers, clearly violating the new Thompson law in the same way that he'd accused Wilkerson of doing just weeks before. The statement not only praised the grand jury for their indictment, but it was also a blatant attempt to influence the jurors of Montgomery County in the trial to come. And that was because, well, the people of Montgomery County had no idea just yet about how weird the odd preacher actually was. Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly was born in England in 1878 and came to America with his wife Laura around 1904. He was obsessed with becoming a minister and eventually joined the Presbyterian Church. He was a bizarre character, plagued by weird habits, and was certainly a sexual deviant. Few knew him well, and those who did were being kind when they referred to him merely as eccentric. But the real question was was he a murderer? In 1912, Kelly was preaching on alternate Sundays at a small country church outside of Macedonia. About three weeks before the murders in Veliska, a reputable witness testified that Kelly was discovered looking into the bedroom window of his house where his wife was changing into her nightgown. It was probably not the first time he'd done it or the only window he peeped in since he was often seen wandering around town at night. Later in June, Kelly was present at the Children's Day program at the Vallisca Presbyterian Church on the night of the murders. His presence there, his departure from town during the early morning hours of June 10th, and his strange behavior following the crime led to his indictment. Kelly traveled to Vallisca to preach and then to attend the program. He planned to stay overnight at Reverend Ewing's house on Sunday evening. When Kelly arrived in Vallisca on Saturday, Seymour Narson, the son of Henry Narson, met him at the train depot. He was driven from the depot to the home of Louis Anarson, Seymour's uncle, for supper. After that, Kelly was taken to Henry Anarson's house to stay the night. According to Anarson family accounts, Kelly acted very nervous when he arrived at their farmhouse about six miles north of Villisca. Almost immediately began pacing the living room floor, and at one point ordered Mrs. Anarson and the children to leave the room because they were too noisy. Kelly spent the night in a small downstairs bedroom, and Mrs. Annarson was so alarmed by his strange behavior that she wrapped herself in a blanket and spent a sleepless night on the stairs leading to the upstairs bedrooms where the children slept, listening carefully for any sound the preacher might make. The next morning, Henry and Seymour Annarson took Kelly to the Pilot Grove Church for a picnic. Prior to lunch, Kelly gave a sermon that Seymour later described as, quote, the strangest he had ever heard. Kelly returned to the Inarsons for supper and then Seymour drove him to Reverend Ewing's house. That was the last time the Inarsons saw him prior to the murders, but they always believed that he might have had something to do with the killings. They later heard that the minister confessed to the crime on the train going back to Macedonia and that he had committed the murders because he had a vision that told him to, quote, slay and slay utterly, a phrase that allegedly came from the Bible. The Inarsons had no reason to believe that the man who'd behaved so oddly at their home was not guilty of the crimes he was accused of. Before he became a major suspect in the murders, Kelly seemed to be doing everything possible to make himself look guilty. When he arrived back in Macedonia on Monday, the day after the murders, he told several people details of what had happened and of the number of people who'd been killed. He claimed that he'd actually heard the thud of the axe as the slaying took place and was one of the first people on the scene after the murders were discovered. He told this story in Macedonia between 8.30 and 9 that morning, about the same time the bodies were being found in Veliska. Now, this is information that he should not have known unless he was the killer. Or, that's how it seems. In a later episode, I'll explain why, even though he was not the Axeman, he had information that no one else had. Hang in there, because it's all coming together very soon. As the investigation into Kelly progressed, it was learned that after the murders, he took a bloodstained shirt to a laundry in Council Bluffs. The package of clothing containing the shirt had been left at the Bluff City Laundry without any name or identifying mark on it. Only a slip of paper that requested a shirt in the basket be returned to Macedonia. Laundry worker Corey Marquand reported that there was a shirt in the package that someone had tried to wash by hand since it was still damp and that it had been soaked with blood. The laundry was sent back to Macedonia unmarked and Kelly came to the drugstore where the delivery was made and claimed it. He had anxiously waited for it to arrive and had made several trips to the store to check to see if it was there yet. Kelly became obsessed with the case and talked about it with anyone who would listen. This often caused incidents and problems, as was recounted earlier when he frightened a number of people in the lobby of a Velisco hotel with a vigorous reenactment of the crime. He began writing letters to police officials and detectives, offering theories on the murders and sometimes implying that he was involved. Rumors claimed that he had seen things that only the killer would know and that he had been heard uttering on a train the ominous phrase, slay and slay utterly, which made his fellow passengers suspicious of him. Kelly went back and forth to Velisca, claiming to be a detective who was investigating the murders. At first, he stayed with Reverend Ewing, but later started staying in hotels when even the kindly Ewing began making excuses not to have the man in his home. He wrote a letter to Ross Moore, claiming that he'd seen a strange man at the train depot on the morning after the murders that he believed may have committed the crime. The man supposedly spoke to him, and Kelly recognized him as a man he'd seen wandering the streets of Villisca during the early hours of the morning. Of course, Kelly didn't explain what he himself had been doing roaming the streets at such an odd hour. As he closed the letter, he asked Ross if he'd be allowed to work on the case as an investigator. Ross politely declined. Kelly continued working as a minister in Macedonia for some time after the murders, and witnesses later recalled that he constantly talked about the crime in Veliska. Late in the fall of 1912, he resigned from the church in Macedonia and from another small church near Veliska, and moved to Carroll, Iowa, where he found a position as a minister. Amazingly. As strange as Kelly was, he somehow always managed to land preaching jobs. I don't get it. Soon after moving to Carroll, he advertised for a class in stenography, which was shorthand, and then sent out another advertisement, looking to get young women to pose in the nude. His mental state continued to deteriorate. Witnesses later recalled Kelly not only talking about the murders, but asking unusual questions, too. One of them, a physician in Carroll, said that Kelly asked him if a man who committed murder could be punished if he was insane. The doctor told him that he could not. He also started to become paranoid, watching and following any strangers who appeared in town. He would make inquiries about them to find out if they were detectives. He was sure the authorities were looking for him. At some point in 1913, Kelly left Iowa and moved to Winter, South Dakota, where he preached, arranged revival services, and offered stenographic work. In late December, he ran an ad in the Omaha World Herald, seeking to employ a stenographer to pose as a model for pictures that would be used in a, quote, literary and artistic work he was writing. The book the ad went on to say would be, quote, high class. A woman in her early 30s from Council Bluffs answered the ad, and Kelly wrote back to her. In his first letter, he asked what experience she had as a typist. He also told her that anything exchanged between them had to be kept in secret for professional reasons. Then he began peppering her with personal questions. Was she free to travel as she pleased? Could she go out at night if she wanted to? Could she meet him in Omaha? Did she have a boyfriend? Was she engaged to be married? He said he needed to know these things because the woman he would hire as a stenographer and typist for an important book he was writing had to be able to work late without having to worry about returning home to her fiancé at a certain time. He also told her that his last stenographer, who of course didn't exist, met him in the evenings and had dinner with him before they went to work. He said their work would be done in a private home where no one would bother them. His letters soon became even more unsettling. He asked the woman to tell him frankly what she thought of a number of classic paintings, all of which were nudes, and whether or not she had any objection to art that depicted undressed figures. He eventually got around to asking what was really on his mind, would she be willing to pose nude for him in a place where they would be, quote, absolutely secret and alone, where nobody would know them or know what they were doing. I wouldn't want to spend time alone with this guy with my clothes on. Anyway, the young woman who received the letters turned them over to her pastor, who in turn gave them to Deputy U.S. Marshal William Gronick and Council Bluffs, who ordered Kelly's arrest for sending obscene materials through the mail. When he was placed under arrest, he told the officers that he knew where they were going to take him. He was wanted in Villisca for murders there. Confused, the agents told him they were going to take him into custody on an obscenity charge, not for murder. Well, Kelly first denied knowing anything about the letters, but then admitted that he'd written them. Kelly was placed in jail in Sioux Falls, where he was alleged to have made lewd advances to fellow prisoners, claimed to be guilty of murder, and generally acted irritable and deranged. Finally, tiring of the constant trouble he was causing, the jailer convinced a judge to charge Kelly with insanity, and he was sent to a federal hospital in Washington, D.C., where he remained for several months. According to the records at the hospital, he was an extremely troublesome prisoner, going into fits of anger, attacking attendants and patients, and screaming profanity. He also had a habit of hiding food in his pockets and in his room, but with no apparent plans to eat it. As time passed, though, he seemed to calm down, and eventually, he was released. After his release, he was sent back to Sioux Falls and indicted in federal court on the obscenity charges. Soon after, the indictment was dismissed because of his mental condition. He was paroled into his wife's custody, which, well, seems rather loose at best. But anyway, his condition had not improved much, although he no longer seemed to be raving mad. He did make several overtures to young women, asking them to pose nude for him. And for this, he was arrested again and taken back to Sioux Falls. He remained in jail for a brief time and then was released back home, where he got into the same trouble all over again. During this time, he still continued to talk about the murders in Villisca, but he now no longer claimed that he'd committed them. After he left there, Kelly went back to work preaching in Sutton, Nebraska. A doctor that knew him in Sutton later testified that he would often come into his office and nervously inquire about strangers in town and whether they were detectives. Witnesses also testified about Kelly wandering about the city at night, just as he had done on that dark night in Villisca in June of 1912. Now, this was the story that newspaper readers in Montgomery County were waking up to on the morning of May 17th. Havner had essentially planted all the incriminating evidence in the newspapers that he had against Kelly, which more than upset the preacher's attorney, A.L. Sutton. During a court hearing, he threatened to have the attorney general charged with violating the Thompson law and demanded that Kelly be held in jail in Red Oak pending trial, not Des Moines, which was too far away. Sutton spent about 15 minutes making disparaging statements against the prosecution until the judge finally shut him down. Wilkerson's many supporters packed the courtroom and loved every minute of Sutton's outbursts. Their applause and laughter whenever they felt that Sutton had scored a point against the prosecutors caused Judge Woodruff, who had tired of Wilkerson in the past and had sent him to jail once for contempt, to warn that he would clear the courtroom if their antics continued. Havner explained to the court that he'd asked Kelly to be incarcerated in Des Moines because a number of people had recently broken out of the Montgomery County Jail. The facility in Des Moines was the best constructed and cleanest in the state and was a better place for a high-profile prisoner like Kelly. He was concerned, he said, that someone might try to take the law into his own hands, and keeping Kelly out of the county seemed to be the best course of action. Judge Woodruff heard both sides and ruled that Kelly would be held in Logan, a city about 80 miles northwest of Red Oak. He did not set a date for the trial, but promised he would soon. Kelly's defense team made no objection to relocating him to the county jail in Logan, but they were perhaps unaware that one of Habner's best agents, James Risden, lived in Logan. Risden would, in the months to come, spend more than a little time with Kelly. Wilkerson was not present at the hearing. When he returned to Iowa, he stopped in Des Moines and realized that his growing celebrity status had extended beyond Montgomery County when the local press sought him out. Wilkerson, who was always happy to get his name in the newspapers, told reporters that he didn't believe the charges against Reverend Kelly. He said that he had quit the detective business and planned to practice law in Red Oak. He'd already started the paperwork that was necessary for him to make an application to the Iowa Bar, but he had apparently not taken into consideration of how he was going to get approved considering the animosity that existed between him and the state's attorney general. Wilkerson did open an office in Red Oak, but he never actually practiced law, not in the conventional sense anyway. For the remainder of 1917, he used the office as a base of operations for the Kelly defense team. And in 1918, and I know you won't be surprised by this, it became the headquarters for his own run for elected office. James Wilkerson, politician, not shocking. The Kelly trial was initially set to start on June 18th, but the state asked for a continuance. Frederick Favell, who would continue to serve as special counsel, was having surgery and would not be available until July. Or so they said. In truth, Kelly's surrender had caught the prosecution off guard and they were not ready to go to trial. The public was disappointed by the delay, but they had other things to occupy their time and curiosity. Like the arrest of James Wilkerson at the end of June. He was arrested in Red Oak because of his involvement in an attempted break-in at the Jones store back in February. Now, I gotta tell you. This is a good story. Now, the authorities had little doubt Wilkerson was behind it. It was probably Jones's private detective, J.H., who tipped off Frank and Albert that the burglary was about to happen. But regardless of how they found out, they knew the burglary was coming and stood guard at the store for several nights in a row. When the bungled attempt occurred, it was just a matter of putting together the details to pin the crime on the detective. Wilkerson later claimed that his objective for the break-in was to obtain evidence for the grand jury, which he said was hidden in Jones's safe, but, well, we're going to find out Wilkerson had a very different motivation altogether. A couple of weeks before the burglary, Wilkerson met with a police officer in Atlantic, Iowa, whom he knew and trusted. He told him that he was looking for someone to, quote, do a job and was referred to Ed Brick Boiler, age 25, who had a criminal record and a collection of burglary tools. Wilkerson, according to Boiler's subsequent confession, told him that he had a job for him, gave him $15 and promised him $100 when the job was completed. They traveled to Red Oak and met in Wilkerson's room at the Johnson Hotel. There, Wilkerson talked extensively about the Velisca case, why he thought Jones was guilty, and what Boiler's role would be in bringing the former senator to justice. Boiler said that not only did Wilkerson assure him the break-in was legitimate detective work, but if he was arrested, he would be released when it became known he was acting as a detective. Wilkerson offered to make him a full-time Burns operative if the plan worked out. Boiler spent a couple of days in Villisca and Red Oak, and then went back to Atlantic to recruit an assistant for the break-in, a pal named William Squint Walker. Oh, man. The two cased the Jones store, buying a couple of small pieces of hardware from Albert, and then set a date for the burglary, which was postponed when Wilkerson missed his train out of Red Oak. He told the two burglars that he needed to get out of town before they broke in so he could establish an alibi for himself. Of course, they should have wondered why Wilkerson needed an alibi if what they were doing was perfectly legal. But if they wondered, they apparently didn't ask or were just too dumb to realize they'd be taking the fall if they were caught. While waiting for the date to arrive, they recruited another friend, 17-year-old Harry Red Knave, who I love these guys' nicknames, who traveled with them to meet Wilkerson in Corning on February 26th. They spent the night there going over details and making final plans. Wilkerson would provide them with a car and a revolver. And then when they reached Feliska, they were supposed to capture the night watchman on duty and lock him up in the town jail. That way they could break into the store without interference. Boiler supposedly knew how to crack a safe, and they were supposed to take whatever documents were inside. On the evening of February 27th, Nave and Walker remained in Corning while Wilkerson and Boiler took the train to Creston, about 25 miles to the west. The complexity of this ridiculous plan was typical of Wilkerson, who came up with schemes that had as many twists and turns as those he attributed to others. Instead of just giving a gun to Boiler, he put it in a suitcase and placed it in a car that the burglars were supposed to use. He didn't even take Boiler to the car. He just told him where to find it. As Boiler left for Corning, Wilkerson set up his own alibi by checking into a Creston hotel. Boiler made it to Corning around 11 p.m., picked up his accomplices, and headed for Villisca. During the drive to Villisca, the three would-be burglars began getting nervous about the scheme. Nave and Walker didn't know it, but as they neared the town of Nottoway, Boiler tried to abort the plan by flooding the engine of their rickety Maxwell automobile. Uh, Wilkerson couldn't even give him a good car. Anyway, he worked in a garage and he knew how to do it without causing suspicion. He canceled the plan and no one would find out about the uneasiness that he was feeling. His friends who rode in nervous silence likely would have gone along without question, but whatever he tried to do with the choke and the accelerator didn't work. And the car puttered on through Nottoway. Not far outside of town, Boiler took a wrong turn and lost the Villisca Road. They had to turn around and backtrack. They got back on course (laughs) and then the car ran out of gas. It was nearly 2 a.m. when Walker and Boiler started walking back to Nottaway to look for gas. They found a building with a gas pump out front, got the proprietor out of bed, and borrowed a can of gasoline. It was nearly 4 a.m. when they finally made it to Villisca. None of them wanted to seem like cowards, but they all knew things were not going well. And things were about to get worse. You see, there were three men with shotguns waiting inside the Jones store. They parked the Maxwell on the north side of town and walked to the square, keeping an eye out for the night watchman. Boiler held the revolver, tightly gripping it in his pocket. He was determined to go through with the plan, but was glad they didn't see the watchman. They needed to get into the store, get out with the documents, and get on their way. They approached the front of the store and looked around. No one was on the street. No one was watching. The plan was to quickly jimmy the door, but if they couldn't do it, they would break the glass on the back door in the alley. As he stepped up to the front door, Boiler thought he saw someone at the window, but when he turned on his flashlight, there was no one there. The reason he didn't see anyone was because Town Marshal Hank Horton, who'd been waiting in a chair by the window, saw the three men and quickly ducked out of sight. He alerted Albert Jones, who had been watching the back door. Horton had his shotgun in hand and was about to return to the front door when two of the burglars arrived at the rear. Boiler had decided the front door was too exposed and continued around the side of the building still looking out for the night watchman. He waited at the entrance to the alley, telling Walker and Knave that he would keep watch until they got the door open. As the two reached the window they intended to break, Horton raised his weapon. Unaware that anyone was inside, the two burglars pressed their faces to the glass, shining their flashlight around the interior of the store. Suddenly, they realized they were looking down the barrel of a shotgun. Horton, at point-blank range, pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired. Walker and Nave, terrified they were about to be shot, ran away down the alley, shoving past Boiler and flailing madly as they tried to get away. Horton had no chance to get off another shot. Like an old Keystone cop's comedy, Albert and Horton gave chase. A few minutes later, a car that Albert recognized as a Maxwell came toward them down the street. They chased the auto on foot and they almost got another shot off when Boiler turned down a dead-end alley and had to back out. The car sped north past the square when the driver got his bearings and sped out of town in the direction they had come from. They refueled, dropped off the gas can in Nottaway, and arrived in Creston around 7 a.m. Wilkerson, roused from bed, was disappointed when he heard the story. He purchased train tickets for Nave and Walker and went with them to Red Oak. Nave went from there to Atlantic, while Walker was given five dollars to go to Villisca and hang around for a few days to see what the talk was about the attempted break-in. Wilkerson told the three failed burglars to keep silent about the botched crime, but the need to share the details of their adventure was just too great for them to stand. Within days, authorities in Atlantic had heard about what had happened. There's no clue as to why it took near four months for an arrest warrant to be issued but perhaps it was because so many other things were going on at the same time. An Iowa State agent spent a little time on the case but detectives hired by Jones did most of the actual work. Havner's busy schedule kept him from delving into the issue for some time, and when he did, he had to admit that the case was not as black and white as Jones considered it to be. Even though the law didn't go as far as Wilkerson had stretched it, it did give private detectives considerable latitude when seeking to obtain evidence. Havner and Favell agreed that getting a Montgomery County judge to convict Wilkerson of the break-in attempt would be difficult. They also knew that any legal action against him would give him the opportunity to tell the press, the courts, and the public that Jones was once again guilty of murder, and that he was being thwarted in his efforts to prove it. But Havner was so blinded by his dislike for Wilkerson that he moved ahead. On June 26th, Frank and Albert Jones and their wives, along with Hank Horton, traveled to Des Moines. They were there for two days, spending at least part of that time at the Attorney General's office. What happened behind closed doors is unknown, but shortly afterwards, Havner moved ahead on the criminal case against Wilkerson, and the arrest soon followed. Havner, hoping to avoid the problem of Wilkerson's popularity in Montgomery County, figured out a way to file the charges in Adams County. Wilkerson and the three men from Atlantic had spent the night before the burglary in Corning devising their plan, so the Attorney General opted to charge them for conspiracy to commit burglary in Adams County. Walker, Knave, and Boiler were rounded up. Once in custody, they not only confessed, but talked openly about what had taken place to newspaper reporters. With confessions in hand, Havner went to Corning and secured an arrest warrant for Wilkerson. The preliminary hearing was held in Corning on July 9th, and a bitter battle began between Havner and Wilkerson. With Judge Shepard presiding, Wilkerson waived the preliminary examination, meaning he would not testify or question witnesses. This left everything to Havner, who planned to examine his prosecution witnesses and then send the case to the grand jury. Frank Jones was one of the main witnesses, and he testified as to the contents of his safe, which had been Wilkerson's target with the break-in. He listed everything that it contained in a three-page document, including many items that would have proved embarrassing to Wilkerson, including court papers from Wilkerson's divorce case, charges against John W. Knoll for theft and a case against him for slander, letters about Wilkerson's behavior during the Nellie Byers case, a letter from the police chief of Blue Island, Illinois, clearing William Mansfield of murder, and a stack of correspondence, reports, and photographs that were used as investigative tools against Wilkerson. There was nothing in the safe that might have incriminated Jones, but pretty much all of it would have made Wilkerson look bad. This was the real reason for the attempted break-in, and Well, everyone knew it. After the final witness testified, Havner concluded by reminding the court that Wilkerson had waived preliminary examination and therefore did not have the right to make oral arguments in court that day. But at this, Wilkerson jumped to his feet with a cry, accusing the attorney general of violating his rights. Wilkerson's supporters cheered and applauded, only quieting when Wilkerson indicated that he wanted to continue. He disparaged Havner and, as usual, accused him of a cover-up. When Havner stood up to object, Just Shepard silenced him, stating that not only did the audience want to hear what Wilkerson had to say, he wanted to hear it himself. And at that moment, Habner must have wondered if he made the right decision in orchestrating the case to be heard in Adams County. Well, Wilkerson went on at length. At one point, he walked over to where Frank Jones sat in the gallery, shook his finger in his face. He thundered, who is Frank Jones that he got so great that it becomes a crime to try and get evidence that he's been responsible for the murder of eight innocent citizens of Iowa, that he can evoke the mighty arm of the state of Iowa. Havner again objected to the court, allowing Wilkerson to continue, but Shepard, now regretting he'd opened the door, was unable to close it. Urged on by a cheering crowd, Wilkerson continued to ridicule Havner, state agents, and many officials of Montgomery County, claiming they were part of a political scheme to protect their friend, Frank Jones. At one point, Jones rose to his feet and looks as though he planned to confront Wilkerson, but Havner intervened. Then, And this just gets better and better. Albert jumped from his seat and went after Wilkerson, intent on pummeling the smirking detective. Havner grabbed him around the chest and held him back. The courtroom was in chaos, and Havner shouted over the noise to ask the judge if they were in a court of law or in the middle of a vaudeville routine. Well, Wilkerson continued on, and Havner, realizing that Shepard had lost control, gave up, sat down, and waited for the tirade to run its course. When it did, 30 minutes later, the judge bound the case over for the grand jury. Wilkerson had lost. After Wilkerson was taken into custody, it was John Knoll who drove to Corning to be there when he was released, and then rushed him to Red Oak in time for a meeting at the Beardsley Theater. When the meeting began, Sheriff Dunn walked onto the stage and served in an injunction, prohibiting the event under the provisions of the Thompson Law. The injunction was issued following a petition filed by Havner in a second strike against Wilkerson. In the petition, he pointed out the detective had conferred with Reverend Kelly in St. Louis and a few days later in Alto Pass, where he informed the minister that an indictment had been issued. Kavaner then detailed how Wilkerson had paid many of Kelly's bills and using the name F.F. Jones, paid to have his possessions shipped to a storage site in Kansas City. He also stated that Wilkerson's rallies had been arranged to influence grand juries, that the detective had broken into Winstron's office and had taken files and records that pertained to the grand jury, and that he'd made threats and had tried to improperly intimidate and influence those who would be assigned to the jury, as well as witnesses, during the Kelly trial. Sheriff Dunn handed the injunction to Wilkerson, who read the two pages signed by Judge Woodruff out loud to his audience. Wilkerson announced that he was not one to violate the law and asked the chairman to continue the meeting and left the stage. Havner had beaten him not once, but twice. The attorney general finally had the Thompson Law serving the purpose that it had been created for— Controlling the actions of James Wilkerson. But the wily detective was not finished yet. Not surprisingly, he managed to use the injunction to his advantage. He left the stage when the document was served, but he immediately made it clear that he was being unfairly victimized. The rally went on, and before it was over, $700 had been collected for Kelly's defense fund. Wilkerson then tried to hold a rally in Omaha, but it was poorly attended and raised little money. He knew he had to return the show to Iowa. In the new legal climate, he was careful about the injunction, at least in the beginning. He did not personally speak about Reverend Kelly starting the first few minutes of the meetings by speaking about justice and fairness, and then turned any talk about a frame-up of Kelly to other speakers. He later told his supporters that he'd found a loophole in the Thompson Law, which he called the Wilkerson Law, and sometimes the Stop Wilkerson Law and said that he didn't think Havner could enforce it. He may have been right, because as the meetings continued, he became bolder and bolder in his remarks, stirring up public opinion like he'd never done before, and he was never arrested for it. Soon, Wilkerson began formalizing an organization, appointing officers, adopting an oath, and of course, requiring a $10 membership fee to join. The money collected was supposed to go toward the defense of Reverend Kelly, but it was really supporting Wilkerson. Oddly, by then, the entire organization had become more about the Velisca murders not being solved. It was a club dedicated to, well, nothing. If the killer was caught, the group would dissolve and the cash flow would end. The whole purpose of the meetings, lectures, and the endless pursuit of the murderer had been turned on its ear. In late July, Wilkerson began posing his 100 questions to the crowd. This was a list of questions he had created much earlier in the investigation that he demanded that Frank Jones answer. They'd been edited and altered by 1917, but mostly dealt with the murder conspiracy and cover-up that he claimed that Jones was involved in. The questions were all couched in a way that they implied guilt, and Wilkerson twisted them to his own devices. The questions became a staple in his new Iowa show. He made sure that they were widely repeated and talked about, not only to spite Jones and Havner, but to get them into people's minds on the eve of the Kelly trial. It was a relatively safe way for him to convey his message because making a statement accusing someone of criminal conduct was potentially more difficult to defend from legal action than, well, just asking a question, no matter how inflammatory those questions might be. He refused to actually print the list for distribution, and thanks to this, the questions could often be changed and reworded. Wilkerson's 100 questions were popular with his followers, but at least a few newspaper editors were beginning to perceive his entire campaign as being outrageously prejudicial. The largest and most influential newspaper in the region, the Des Moines Register and Leader, had taken Wilkerson's side on the Thompson Law, pointing out that it was aimed at one individual and was a violation of freedom of speech, but it took a dim view of the 100 questions. The newspapers published an editorial urging the public to condemn Wilkerson's actions as a detective, quote, for never in history of a crime was pursuit of anybody conducted in this way by a sane man who had honest motives. But Wilkerson, of course, didn't let up. He liked the format of his new rally so much that he prepared another 100 questions for Havner and had them printed in pamphlet form which, of course, he sold for a dime apiece. The questions for Havner were just as suggestive, misleading, self-important, and senseless as those that had been written for Frank Jones. By this time, other newspapers were starting to get wind of Wilkerson's antics and roundly condemn them. Kelly's arrest and the approach of what promised to be a sensational trial had attracted media attention from all over the Midwest. With downtime between the arrest and trial, the reporters had little else to cover but Wilkerson's rallies. The local newspapers with subscribers on both sides of the issue tried to remain neutral, but those outside of Montgomery County finally began to express what they'd been thinking for quite some time, that Wilkerson was nothing but a con artist who ought to be made, as one editorial stated, to put up or shut up. Wilkerson continued to hold his rallies right up to the time of the trial. He took the show to dozens of small towns, and Jones's mysterious J.H. was still on the payroll and was still working as a news reporter and an undercover agent within Wilkerson's camp. He attended many of the meetings and passed the news to Jones and then to Havner that people were becoming more inflamed and more enraged by Wilkerson's speeches. There was good reason for the concern about violence breaking out as noted by some of the newspaper editorials of the time. There seemed to be no way they could find an impartial jury for the Kelly trial. Wilkerson's meetings continued, and Havner simmered over them, but he followed advice given to him by Favle that he not engage and try not to use the Thompson law against him. Give the man enough rope, he'd hang himself. According to the treasurer's accounts from Wilkerson's organization, the detectives were being paid $5 per day during the summer of 1917, plus 10 cents per mile, and all of the proceeds from the sale of the pamphlets. There were also a few other incidental expenses, but revenue exceeding those expenses was supposed to be set aside for the Kelly Defense Fund. It was no surprise that questions would be raised later about where all the money had gone. The trial was set to begin on September 4th, and as the date got closer, Havner was forced to confront the evidence he had against Kelly. Letters written by Havner before the trial indicate that he truly believed Reverend Kelly was guilty, but he knew there were problems other than those started by Wilkerson. He could prove opportunity, the bloody shirt, and the testimony that Kelly had talked about the murders before they were discovered. He could also show that Kelly was a pervert with an unhealthy interest in young girls, that he walked the streets at night, and that he liked peeking in windows. He could also produce witnesses who would tell of the minister trying to get girls to pose nude for him, and prisoners who claimed Kelly had groped them and tried to perform oral sex on them. He could also show that Kelly was obsessed with the axe murders, had spoken about them continuously over the years, and even claimed to have committed them on various occasions, but he knew there was no way he could prove the substance on Kelly's shirt had been blood, or even if the shirt belonged to the minister at all. The five-year period between the murders and the trial posed obvious problems since witnesses were bound to remember things differently. Former Sheriff Jackson and former County Attorney Ratcliffe were expected to testify and both of them would say that they had looked closely into Kelly, but found no reason to charge him. Havner also had to deal with the fact that several Velisca residents had gotten onto the train with Kelly on the morning after the murders, and none of them saw blood on his clothing or heard him talk about the murders. It was only after Kelly changed trains at Henderson that he allegedly talked about the crime and made his incriminating slay and slay utterly statement. He was also aware that even though Kelly was obviously disturbed, it was going to be hard to prove he was a murderer. Just because Havner believed it, it didn't mean that he could convince a jury. It was not a strong case, and given the mood of Montgomery County residents that year, Havner knew his chances were poor. He needed something else, and even though it was a risk, he decided to take a chance. According to several law enforcement officials and a prisoner who shared a cell with Kelly, the preacher was ready to confess to the Villisca murders. If Havner could convince him to do so, the trial would be over in no time, ending in a conviction. So on August 30th, Havner met with his agent Risden at the jail in Logan and went to meet Reverend Kelly for the first time. Two court reporters and several law enforcement officials were on hand to listen to Kelly's confession. The questions began at 1030 p.m. and continued through the night. Everything was taken down in shorthand and then transcribed. When it ended, a court reporter typed up Kelly's words. The Reverend read it, made some corrections, watched those sections being retyped, and then signed it. Reverend Kelly had just confessed to one of the most horrendous murders in Iowa history, and the long nightmare was finally over. Or at least that's what Attorney General Havner thought at the time. Reverend Kelly was brought to Red Oak on September 3rd. Representing him was Thomas J. Hysham, A.L. Sutton, John A. McKenzie, and Wilkerson's attorney, William Mitchell. You won't be surprised to learn that James Wilkerson had also gotten himself a seat at the defense table. At the prosecution table were Attorney General Horace Habner, County Attorney Winston, Frederick Favel, and J.J. Hess, a trial attorney who had been recently added to the team. The judge presiding over the trial was W.D. Boise. Iowa's Chief Justice Frank R. Gaynor had gone outside of the judicial district when he assigned the trial, choosing Judge Boise because he had a reputation for running a fair and tight proceeding. Everyone is aware of the attention the trial was going to get and the way that related hearings had gotten out of control in other courtrooms. The Chief Justice thought Boise could handle any problems that came along. Before jury selection could start, Kelly's attorneys were complaining to the press about the minister's confession. From the prosecution side, everyone who was present for his confession, with, as it turned out, the exception of Reverend Kelly, swore that no grilling, no third degree, no promises, and no threats were made at any time. Both court reporters, along with their transcripts, supported this, but Kelly's lawyers painted a very different picture of the treatment of their client. Attorney John McKenzie had started saying the confession had been coerced on the very morning after it took place. McKenzie said that Kelly told him he'd been given the third degree by Havner and six others all Thursday night and Friday morning, and he'd finally broken down at almost 4 a.m. He claimed that Kelly had been told that a lynch mob was waiting for him in Montgomery County, but there were 20,000 National Guard soldiers that would save him in Des Moines if he confessed. He also said that Kelly begged to have his attorneys present, but this was denied. A.L. Sutton said almost the same thing, telling the press that Havner had threatened Kelly with lynching and only promised to protect him if he confessed. He said that Kelly had been sick, unable to eat, and then he was in a weakened state when Havner and the others took him from his cell and frightened him into reading the statements of 85 witnesses who were going to appear against him. Kelly was completely innocent, Sutton said. The confession was worthless. Defense attorney William Mitchell agreed that the confession was laughable. He said that the minister once told him that he had sunk the Lusitania and that given the right time and place, Kelly would confess to anything. He said Havner should have known better. Kelly obviously had a number of problems and his confession should have never been taken seriously. Kelly's confession was withdrawn, leaving the prosecution's case in shambles. The opening days of the trial did not go well, but the defense suffered too. Juror after juror was questioned, challenged, and excused. The prosecutors asked every prospective juror if they had attended any of Wilkerson's rallies or had been otherwise influenced and found very few who had not. Wilkerson has spread his message far and wide, and finding an unbiased juror was just as difficult as everyone imagined it would be. Judge Boise was tough on both sides, but he took special time to admonish Wilkerson, who was more animated than the judge thought he should be at the defense table. By midweek, the supply of jurors was running low, and it became necessary to draw from 75 additional names that had been collected for just that reason. Even with the stern hand of Judge Boise, courtroom disruptions frequently occurred. Sympathetic citizens often crowded around Kelly to shake his hand and offer encouragement. On the first day of jury selection, the judge told the bailiff not to let it happen again. When it did, in fact many times as the week passed, Boise told the bailiff that if he allowed the public to approach Kelly one more time, he'd been replaced by someone who would do his duty. Unfortunately, Boise used his one-more-time threat far too many times, leading people to suspect he was not as tough as his reputation made him out to be. Disruptions continued throughout the entire trial. With the confession gone, Havner had to rely on other evidence to make his case. The prosecution essentially relied on four points, and during closing arguments, Havner's team would tell the jury that any of the first three, independent of other evidence, was sufficient for a conviction. They had the confession, which Havner maintained was legitimate, Testimony that Kelly had talked about the murders before they were discovered and the bloody shirt. Fourth, they would try to show the jury that Kelly was a pervert with an unnatural lust for young girls. Now, Kavner had to be careful with this approach. He was trying to secure the murder conviction of a preacher in the most religious part of the country. He was also maintaining that only a madman was capable of the crimes that he'd committed, but that Kelly, who was insane, had been rational and truthful when he confessed. The biggest issue was that regardless of the evidence, it was hard for people in small-town Iowa during the early 1900s to conceive of anyone committing a crime that was so unspeakably horrible. This was one reason why the conspiracy theory created by Wilkerson captured people's attention in the way that it did. To believe in his story, it was not necessary to believe that Frank Jones himself had taken an ax and bashed out the brains of the sleeping family and their small guests. It was only necessary to accept that he had felt emotions that everyone was capable of, namely bitterness and anger then allowed his anger to get control of him, starting a chain of events that ended in murder. The killers themselves were faceless strangers, the proverbial boogeyman, who had no connection to anyone in southwest Iowa. More than a dozen people were implicated by Wilkerson, and it was easier to accept that each played some small role in the whole thing, and that no one person was responsible for all of it. Havner's task was to convince a jury, aware of Wilkerson's theory, whether they admitted it or not, that the crime was the act of one man. He had to show that Kelly was not just mentally unbalanced, but that on one night in June 1912, his madness, religious fervor, and sick sexual desires caused him to become something other than the frail little man who was sitting slumped over at the defense table. Havner and his team would produce witnesses to demonstrate that Kelly in the years after the murders was obsessed with the desire to see naked girls and young women, at least one of whom he tried to solicit to pose nude. They would also show that he had a history of window peeping and would walk the streets at night. They believed that these sexual desires were what pushed him over the edge that night in Vallisca. Havner believed that the preacher had left the Ewing home that night, had walked to the Moore house, saw a light in the bedroom window on the first floor, and watched the Stillinger girls getting undressed for bed. Either as he was walking up to the window or leaving it, he stumbled onto an axe. He heard voices. God was talking to him, and as he stood there in the yard, his insanity overwhelmed him. He entered the house carrying the axe, found a lamp and lit it, and took it from room to room, killing everyone inside. Habner believed that Kelly then returned to the bed of the Stillinger girls and draped cloth over the windows. Ina, the youngest, was next to the wall. Lena, nearly 12, who was described as physically mature for her age, was on the side closest to the killer. Kelly pulled the covers back and tugged her body down on the bed. Her nightgown was pulled above her waist, and her underwear was taken off and dropped on the floor. Her knees were pulled apart, opened in the way that Kelly needed her to be posed. Kelly then masturbated, or attempted to, and his rage finally passed. But he still had work to do. He took Lena's underwear from the floor, wiped the blood from his hands in the axe, and then placed the axe next to the wall. He covered his victims with sheets, rinsed his hands in the basin, and wandered about the house, moving and touching items. Finally, putting out the lamp and locking the front door behind him, he departed. Kelly then returned to the Ewing house, where he'd left his suitcase. He buttoned his coat so that the bloodstains on his shirt were hidden, and walked down to the depot to await the arrival of the morning train. This was Havner's Theory. And I believe this is almost exactly what happened that night, except for the fact that Kelly was not the one who wielded the axe. The prosecution began the case with a series of witnesses who testified to Kelly's obsession with the murders. They came from various towns where he'd lived, even from South Dakota. Max Stimple of Macedonia testified that on Monday afternoon of the murders, Kelly told him he'd spent the previous night in Velisca, that he'd not felt well, went out on the street and heard thumping sounds coming from a house where the murders were committed. He told Stimple that it sounded like someone hitting a pig in the head with an ax. Havner called witnesses who traveled on the morning train with Kelly, who distinctly heard him say there'd been an awful murder in Valiska the night before, and that he was going to apply to work on the case as a detective. This was between 7 and 7.30 a.m., an hour or more before the murders were discovered. They weren't alone. A parade of witnesses passed through the courtroom, each of them testifying. Kelly seemed to know about the murders long before the news of the discovery had broken. The impact of most of these witnesses was dampened by cross-examination. Their testimony was weakened by that of others who were present, but either hadn't seen Kelly or hadn't heard him speak of the murders until the afternoon. Some of the state witnesses, it was learned, were not even sure of the exact time and date. But even under the most intense cross-examination from Mitchell, witnesses on the train that morning stuck to their story of hearing Kelly murmuring, slay and slay utterly. But on what date? They were sure it was a Monday in June and thought it was the 10th, but Mitchell elicited from them the admission they weren't completely certain of the date. At this point, good detective work and accurate record-keeping by the railroad allowed the prosecution to reinforce the testimony. Records of ticket sales were not generally well-kept, but the depot in the town of Sydney was apparently the exception. He found two tickets— purchased by the witnesses at the same time on the morning of June 10th. The defense objected to the admission of the records, but Judge Boise overruled it. The best that Mitchell could manage was to get the station agent to say that the ledger entry had been handwritten and that whoever wrote it could have made a mistake. Havner was then ready to offer Kelly's confession. Judge Boise had denied the defense motion to suppress it, so it was slowly and deliberately read to the jury and into the record, listening in the quiet courtroom, interrupted only by the sobs of Reverend Kelly. Even those who felt that he was being framed were forced to reconsider. In the confession, Kelly detailed his movements in Villisca before the Children's Day program at the church and then spoke of staying with the Ewings at their home. Unable to sleep that night, he got out of bed and went outside. He claimed he was working on a sermon on a text called Slay Utterly. He went over and over it in his mind. And as he walked, he claimed that he felt it grip him in a way he didn't understand. God wanted him to slay utterly, he believed. But he did not know where he was going or what he was supposed to do. The voice kept calling out to him to slay utterly. And Kelly replied, yes, Lord, I will. As he walked, he wandered into a yard and stumbled across an axe. He picked it up. And began to call to a shadow that he believed God had shown him and wanted him to follow. He went to the front door and a voice commanded, Go in and do as I tell you, slay utterly. Unable to control himself, he went into the house and followed the voice, walking through rooms and not knowing why he was there, only knowing he was driven by an impulse and a voice. Kelly stated that the voice told him, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Kelly replied, They're coming, Lord. Before he knew what he was doing, he started sending those children somewhere. I did not know what I had to do as God told me and slay utterly, and so to obey God, I used the axe. Kelly confessed that after killing the children, he went into the room where the parents were, and he killed them too. My head was all wrong, and I kept hearing voices, he said. He said that he wanted to rest and went downstairs to another bedroom he'd seen and found that two children were in the bed. More work yet, God told him, and before he knew what he was doing, he continued his sacrifices. By killing the two little girls, Kelly said that he believed he was offering blood sacrifices to God. The confession ended with, quote, to the best of my memory, I left the axe in the house and returned to the Ewing home and went back to bed. By present-day standards, Kelly's confession was absurd. Not only would it not meet the standards of evidence today, but no prosecutor would accept such a vague statement that was lacking in the details the way that Kelly's was. Basically, he said he was crazy, heard voices, killed the Moors and the Stillinger sisters, never offering anything that he could not have read in the newspapers. Personally, I have no doubt that Kelly was connected to the crime in a way I'll explain later on, but he most certainly did not commit the murders. Even the chances of the slight, scrawny little man being able to swing a heavy axe with the force needed to commit the eight murders, well, it's preposterous. A procession of witnesses appeared on the stand to bolster the prosecution's theory of the crime. They called the laundry worker who reported the bloody shirt and the wife of a druggist who said that Kelly was often in her husband's store talking about the murders. He often told her that the killer had first stunned the victims by hitting them with the flat side of the axe and had returned later and chopped them to death. He also said that the girls in the downstairs bedroom were hardest to kill because one of them woke up. She said that Kelly claimed the killer had been interrupted in his work when he heard the voices of two men walking past the house and that he'd gone to the kitchen porch and listened until they were gone. Other witnesses were called to say that Kelly told them about the shirt many times over the years sometimes saying that it was stained after he cut himself shaving while others said he claimed he'd spilled hair tonic on it. The defense refuted all the testimony about the shirt. There were no tests to confirm that the stain had been blood. Doctors were called in to talk about the bloody smear on Lena Stillinger's leg and whether it was caused by a hand. Doctors with backgrounds in mental illness were called, but their testimonies really just canceled each other out. Those called by the prosecution told the jury that Kelly was capable of murder and his confession could be valid, while those for the defense felt the suspect was hopelessly insane, would admit to anything, and was unlikely to commit a crime of violence. The jury must have been confused as they listened to the doctors who swore that Kelly was in his right mind when he gave the confession, only to have those words refuted by doctors with equally impressive backgrounds who said he was not. When the state rested its case against Kelly, the defense began theirs with the now-familiar prosecution of, you guessed it, Frank and Albert Jones. They were using Wilkerson's conspiracy to try and prove Kelly was innocent. The defense called the witnesses from the slander trial, like Ed Landers, who claimed he saw Albert Jones walk into the Moore house, along with his mother, who claimed to hear Sarah Moore scream in the night. They even called Alice Willard and John Knoll and many others whose stories were proven to be false by a recent grand jury, but of course, this jury... Didn't know that. Judge Boise refused to allow some of them to testify, agreeing with the state's objections that their testimony was irrelevant to the guilt or innocence of Kelly. The ruling probably made little difference when it came to what the jurors did or didn't know. If they had not attended one of Wilkerson's meetings, then they'd probably read the reports of the slander trial in the newspaper. The state had run out of strikes to remove potential jurors long before the line of jurors had run out. It was impossible to think that they could keep every supporter of Wilkerson's theories out of the jury box. The trial was in its second week when the defense called Laura Kelly to the stand. She testified in a prim British accent that she and her husband had gotten married in London 12 years earlier. Then she recounted the events of their life together up until the time of his arrest for murder. She had been the one who packed his bag for Vallisca, she said. There were toiletry items, something for him to read, but no extra clothing. When he returned on Monday, he was wearing the same clothes he'd set out in, and she noticed no stains. Laura was a sympathetic character to the people in the courtroom, especially those who agreed with Wilkerson that the minister was not guilty of the murders. The tall, slender, homely woman slouched when she stood or sat next to her five foot-2-inch husband, deliberately trying to make herself look smaller. Kelly often cried out and sobbed at the defense table and she would put an arm around him, pat his back and wipe away his tears. As prosecution witnesses gave horrific evidence against him, he moaned and with just the top of his head reaching her shoulder, she would pull him close and comfort him like a child. Laura often held his hand and whispered in his ear. Oscar Winston later said that he sometimes looked over at her from the prosecution table and wondered if she had any regrets. He'd interviewed her many times before the trials, trying to get some sort of insight into her husband's behavior. She once confided him that she and her husband had never, quote, had normal sexual relations. The county attorney affirmed from this that they had engaged in some sort of sexual activity, but not what she considered normal. He would wonder, more than 50 years later, what she'd meant by her statement. Witnesses were called who had seen the axe marks in the ceiling of the Moore House. The defense used them to cast doubt on the idea that the very small Kelly, who weighed just 120 pounds, was strong enough to have struck the ceiling with the backswing of the axe. Years later, people in the courtroom that day would speak of the dramatic effect of seeing the axe raised high and measured. Kelly cringed when the prosecution proved that based on Kelly's height and the length of his arms and the axe handle, he could have swung it high enough to make the marks and commit the murders. He could have, but it was very unlikely that he had. Closing arguments lasted for two days, with several attorneys addressing the court. Hess took half a day with the initial presentation on behalf of the state, followed by slightly longer presentations by Sutton and Heysham for the defense. County Attorney Winston deferred to Favell, after which Mitchell had his turn. Attorney Havner spoke last. Here are just some of the highlights from the closing statements. Hess reviewed the details of the crime and told the jury that it could only have been committed by a madman, a moral degenerate, and a sexual pervert. He went into uncomfortable descriptions about Lena Stillinger and her, quote, womanhood, trying to recreate in the jurors' minds the sensations that Kelly must have been feeling when he saw her. Unable to violate her, he took out his rage in other ways, Hess said. He reminded the jury of Kelly's obsession with the crime, the bloody shirt, and his attempts to get women to pose. Nude for him. He added, quote, We find him preaching a sermon one day and the next day we find him trying to get his young woman stenographer to strip off her clothes. He took time to ridicule the defense witnesses and finally he closed with remarks about the confession, disparaging the defense claims that Kelly was mistreated. I leave it to you, gentlemen. Has he done it? Fifty-one times during the conversations held in the sheriff's office at Logan, Kelly was urged to tell the truth. Repeatedly, Kelly begged the authorities not to turn him loose. I may do it again if you do, he said. And yet the counsel for the Defense asked you to give this man his liberty. When Hess finished, the jury took a break and Sutton took the floor. He began with a passionate discourse on the virtues of Reverend Kelly, a man who, quote, felt his call to preach the gospel of the living Christ. He spoke of Kelly's mother in England, anxiously awaiting the results of the trial, and how his wife's heart had been wrenched as she sat next to her accused husband during the proceedings. Sutton's emotions, or his acting skills, swelled to the point that he began to cry. When this happened, Kelly, who was watching him intently, also began to cry. Laura hugged him and dabbed at his cheeks with her handkerchief. Sutton then got down to business. He said the jury should disregard anything that Kelly said or wrote because, well, he was insane. He also claimed that the entire trial had nothing to do with Kelly. It was actually about Attorney General Havner getting James Wilkerson. Wilkerson's supporters in the courtroom, of course, loved this, and Sutton banged his fist on the defense table and gave them more, outlining all the ways that Wilkerson had tried to reveal the truth about the case that Havner was covering up. He concluded by saying it was impossible in a house as flimsy as J.B. Moore's to have killed anyone without awakening everyone in the house. He said it was likewise impossible for the crime to have been committed by one person, at least one as frail as Kelly. He wanted an acquittal, but he let the jury know he would have no problem if they decided to send Kelly to a mental hospital. In fact, he told the jury Kelly was not only a nut, but a carload of nuts. Hysham also took aim at Kelly. He said that the murders would have been impossible to commit in the way that Kelly claimed he had in his confession. He could not have climbed the stairs with an axe in one hand and the lamp in the other, passed within inches of J.B. and Sarah's bed and killed the children without waking the parents up. Besides, Hysham said, Kelly did not confess. Havner had written the words and Kelly had been forced to sign them. He said Havner had gone to Logan to get the confession, quote, with malice in his heart and ambition in his mind. William Mitchell had endeared himself to Wilkerson supporters during the slander trial and his cutting wit, commanding presence, and deep voice riveted the attention of juries. Mitchell had a folksy way of describing himself as just a country lawyer that belied his razor-sharp mind, and the press could always rely on him for good quotes. He was the perfect choice to sum up the defense's case, but his talk was not all that interesting, because there was so little left to say. He spent two and a half hours, though, reiterating what everyone else had already said, but he did it in his own creative way. He referred to Kelly as a man who, quote, his high calling in life was to blaze the way for his fellows in the inevitable journey over the river. After another break for the jury, it was Fable's turn, leading off his presentation with a shot at Sutton, referring to his closing as, quote, the 4th of July speech we all learned in the 5th grade years ago. He said that Sutton's remarks were pleasant to listen to, but they were no help in arriving at the truth. Favel proved that he was just as witty as Mitchell, making humorous swipes at Hysham's closing remarks, and the difficulty of imagining a scenario in which the killer had to have had a light to commit the crime, yet could have passed the light over J.B. Moore's bed without awakening him. Hysham, Favel said, told the jury that the members of the household could not have been killed in the dark, but then they could have only been killed by the light of anything in the house. The only conclusion, he smirked, we can draw from the council's argument, is that these people were never killed at all. As to Hyphen's remarks about Kelly not being able to commit the crime without awakening the victims, Favel said that Hysham apparently had no experience trying to get children out of bed in the morning for breakfast. Kelly was a small man who could tiptoe easily from room to room without being heard. He defended Havner, stating that the confession was fairly obtained. There was no force, no coercion, no intimidation. When the confession was typed, Kelly read it, made some corrections, and finally signed it. Favreau left the jury with a plea not to release a man like Kelly, who had once said that he would kill again if God told him to. Havner had saved himself for last, and he summarized the entire case against Kelly. He did this patiently and in great detail, defending the confession and going over the testimony that supported a conviction. He concluded his nearly three-hour summarization with one grim thought, quote, Gentlemen, you're standing between this man and society. He has told you he does not want to be turned loose. I'm done now. My duty has been performed. I've done the best that I could. Havner's final words to the jury seemed to show he felt his best had still fallen short. He and Favle had feared the worst before the trial had even started. As Favle wrote to him weeks before the trial began, quote, A conviction of Kelly in this county is an impossibility. Judge Boise read the instructions to the jury, which included a careful explanation of the degrees of guilt available for their findings. They had five possible verdicts. First degree murder, second degree murder, manslaughter, not guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. The latter verdict, he explained, meant that the suspect had committed the crime but could not be held responsible because he was insane at the time the crime was committed. The jury was sent out to deliberate on the afternoon of Wednesday, September 26th. They worked for four hours before taking their first ballot. Eleven voted for acquittal and one voted for not guilty by reason of insanity. There was more discussion, more ballots, but the results didn't change. Beds were moved into the courthouse, but the jury didn't use them the first night. They debated until morning, but still the only holdout refused to budge. On the afternoon of the second day, a note was sent to Judge Boise saying they could not agree and asked to be released. The judge sent back a note of his own, refusing the request. They were to work until they arrived at a verdict, he said. As Thursday turned into Friday, the mood in the jury room turned dark. Some of the jurors were no longer speaking to one another. The holdout juror refused to discuss it further and would not take part in another ballot. Observers outside the courthouse saw jurors standing at the windows for extended periods of time, their arms crossed and their faces set in anger. Finally, the debate ended. Eleven stood for acquittal, one for insanity, with no hope for progress. On Friday afternoon, after 21 ballots and more than 44 hours of deliberation, the judge allowed them to give up. It was a hung jury. And if the state still wanted to convict Kelly, they'd have to do the whole thing over again. The defense team celebrated, never believing the prosecution would go through all of it again. But the pursuit of Reverend Kelly was not quite over yet. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, which will include Reverend Kelly's final day in court, the suicide of one of the players in this bizarre story, and finally, the long-awaited downfall of James Wilkerson. So keep your doors locked and the windows closed. If the killer wasn't Reverend Kelly, well, that means he's still out there somewhere.
1: Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine-to-five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey no no not don't don't, don't don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do we After almost 50 episodes, we're figuring this shit out. Yeah, yeah we're at
0: episode 49. <laughs> I know, that's what I thought too.
1: Hey, you know, if this was the our day job, we would have figured it out. But it's <laughs> exactly. not, so. it is not. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest Axe Murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy the Axeman Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Can I get that to catch <laughs> you on? Could,
0: you could give it a shot. You know, I when I bought my Jeep, uh, you know how- That's why I did I it. I know, used to whenever they did, You know, used to have to wait forever for plates. Yeah. And now they like make them at the, or they have a big pile of them or something. Oh, I didn't know At the dealership. And um, the guy, you know, I've got that one email address, which is Mm -hmm. Axeman. And, um, when the guy came out and put my plates on, he goes, you're not even going to believe this. And I said, what? And he says, take a look at your plates. And it actually says "AX" on oh, it a number. No, I didn't plan that. No, no I didn't. It was, it, you asked Lisa, oh it was God. a complete and total fluke. Um, wow. it just happened to be, that was the one they pulled off the pile. Cause
1: I drove up, I saw your Jeep today yeah. and that's when I made this joke and yeah, I put it no, in my notes.
0: For real. I'm not kidding. Wow. That was a, that was a fluke. I mean, it just worked out that way. The
1: universe is funny I guess, sometimes. I guess. Um, okay. So recording at our, at our favorite spot, the, we are. the best We're Western, back at the
0: best Western premiere. That's where the,
1: the conference happens every year. Um, yeah, but yeah so we got, we got stuff coming up that, yeah, I mean, the conference is a way that's, off. That's but. way
0: off. It's next June, but this is when we start talking about it. It's when we start getting excited about it. At the end of August, every year people don't believe us, but we actually spend an entire year planning this event. Yeah. And I think that when you get there, it's worth it. You know, we had a lot of we had a huge crowd last year and we had a lot of podcast listeners, which was great. And you talked to a lot of people at your table. I mean more than way more than in the previous years. Um, All day. And this is gonna be a a good one. It's gonna be another great event. It's our twenty-fourth annual. So it's I'm a little less pressure than it will be the next year. I'm okay. a little concerned about the 25th. 25. We really got to make it big because as I'm sure a lot of our listeners already know by this time, uh, by the time they hear this, um, Rosemary Ellen Giley passed away. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about that in our last episode, uh, but I thought it was fitting to talk about when we talk a little bit about the conference. But Rosemary has been a standard at the conference since, well, 1990. 88 or 89. So she's been there almost every year, but maybe one or two. Um, Until this past year, she um, had to skip out um, for health reasons, but she said, "Don't worry, I'll be there for sure next year." Um, and I'm sure she will be in spirit. Right. But unfortunately, Rosemary passed away after a battle with cancer. And um, yeah, it's gonna be um, it's gonna be weird. Yeah, it's gonna be weird planning a conference without Rosemary because she comes every year, whether she's a speaker or just a presenter doing workshops and stuff. Um, her and Sherry Brake have been kind of switching off with us over the years, but. Um, you know, it's, it's gonna be a great event and uh, we're gonna do our speakers panel on Saturday night. Um, we're going to kind of do that in honor of Rosemary, the way that we do yeah. strange stuff in honor of our friend John Brill. And uh, we'll have a tribute to Rosemary at the beginning of the conference. Sure. But yeah, we're going to miss her. Um, I've known her for a very long time. We've been friends for about 25 years. I wrote forwards to some of her books and uh, she's she and I have always been um, really good friends. And it's a it's a real loss. It yeah. really is. So um, anyway, but we are um, the, the conference is up so you can check it out at ghostconference.net. Uh Tickets are going to go on on sale in January. So um, we'll, um, I mean, we'll talk more about that later. Sure. I think, uh, I think
1: now that you mentioned it for 25, I might have to get drastic and like <laughs> do podcasts in my underwear. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure, we'll figure right? it out. Right.
0: We'll figure it out. I've got
1: a little bit of time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, regarding Rosemary, um, we, we did a, a bonus episode uh, on Patreon yeah. a couple yeah. weeks ago. Um, I never had the privilege to record a conversation with her, but yeah, Scott. Yeah, it's always too busy. Well, yeah, right. Scott, right. Scott, has, Scott has quite Scott a Scott from yeah. Ghostly Talk Podcast yeah. was kind enough to uh, let me use some audio from uh, the last conversation conversations that they recorded. So you can check that out on our Patreon. And um, it's a fun interview. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's going to be missed. Yeah, she really will. But like you said, be there in spirit. Oh, yeah. Probably literally.
0: She will. Yeah. Yeah. Probably literally. Um, In fact, that's a story in itself. I may save that for Halloween. Okay. Because we've um, let's just say that I always said that right after Rosemary passed away, one of the things I said, well, if anybody is going to make contact, it's going to be Rosemary. Mm-hmm. And she yeah, actually has, oh, no, yeah? she actually has, and okay. not with me, um, at least not yet. Um, but right. I know that she has with April, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. Sure. Um, but I do want to mention one thing now that I said, April and Halloween that I put the two together. Yes. Um, if we have any listeners out in the, um, the, the, the Rocky mountain region area, Utah, Colorado, um, on Halloween night uh i uh myself april and richard estep who was at the conference and we'll be back again in 2020 the three of us are going to be at asylum 49 in tool utah for a special event um it's a charity event for make a wish foundation um i mentioned to somebody (laughs) i mentioned to somebody that i was flying out for make a wish to utah for (laughs) halloween and they were like are you dying? <laughs> no, 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 not for me. Um, I, We're we're doing the fundraiser. Uh, April and Richard and I are doing a fundraiser. We're doing a book signing and stuff, and then we're going to do a ghost hunt at the at the asylum for on Halloween night. So if you happen to be out in that area, um, check out. Uh, go to April's website um, at aprilslaughter.com and you can get tickets for that. There's going to be a limited number of tickets, um, I, and I know that a bunch of them have already been grabbed. So um, we'd love to see. You there. So if you get a chance um, and you're out that way, uh, come by. We'll know you heard about it on the podcast. So
1: yep. that'd be great. As I always say, you can't spell slaughter without laughter, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I think I, I, any any kid that does any kind of make a wish thing that has to do with ghosts or Halloween or anything, I want to meet that kid. Yeah, right. Because right. the kid sounds awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, but anyway, but I mean, we also have all of our stuff going on in the fall. I mean, and we're talking about the conference this next June, uh, but we have lots of stuff coming up in September and October. Um, you know, all of our tours in Springfield, Car. Carlinville, Decatur, Alton. Um, we've got a lot of special events. I'm doing a number of those evening with things, although they're filling up pretty fast, and uh, although we wished we'd added one that we didn't add that I don't yes. know if I can get that in there anywhere or not, but maybe if there's an interest, well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Sure. But um, anyway, if you're interested in any of the tours or anything, um, you can go to American that'll take you pretty much everywhere you want to go. And you can see all of the different stuff we've got coming up from the river road tours to just our basic tours and things. All of that stuff is on sale now. And, you know, I know it's still August and it seems like summer, but you know, once the kids go back to, school, to me, that's like fall is beginning. Yeah. And, uh, I know that unofficially summer ends on Labor Day, but man, it it seems like it's almost over. I mean, Lisa starts back in school. I know. Has it been back in school since the middle of the month? This is insane. Yep. Um, this summer went so fast, but, um, that's okay. Cause fall's coming when we got all kinds of stuff for planned for winter. We haven't even released yet. Yeah. So it's going to be, I mean, we've always got something going on. So hopefully you just, just, Keep up with us. And um, there's always fun things to do.
1: Yeah. Check it out. American com. Yeah. Or just correct, American or OK. That's yeah. the easiest. Forgot, one, you
0: own so, so many domains. I know, but they all go to the same place. <laughs> right, so, <you> right. know.
1: <laughs> smart, smart. Um, so you mentioned something earlier. Um, if you are a true crime nerd like the rest of us are, there's been some some interesting news. Yeah. Uh, they're going to dig up
0: John Dillinger. Can you tell well, me a little bit well, about what's if going that's on? John Dillinger. They're, OK. They're going uh, well, okay, to. Here's the, the thing. Grave. I. I have been talking about, uh, I mean, I've got books that date back to the nineties talking about the fact that uh, I don't believe that it was John Dillinger that was killed at the Biograph Theater in July 22nd of 1934. I've always thought it was someone else only because, or the main reason is why is because none of the autopsy records match. Mm -hmm. Um, The body doesn't match. There were things about the body that, that didn't match John Dillinger, like eye color, um, the fact that the body that was in the morgue had once had rheumatic heart fever uh, when they were a kid, which would have prevented them from playing baseball, which Dillinger did, or prevented him from being the Navy, which Dillinger was in, um, and probably would have Preventing him from doing a lot of the stuff he did when he was robbing banks, yeah. um, but this person that was on the slab, you know, also had you know the wrong color eyes for Dillinger. There were a lot of lot of issues, and there were a lot of family members at the time that were saying, "Well, he doesn't look quite right." You know, um, was he really shot up or something? He, like, no, or? he just did. It just didn't look right. I mean, he didn't look like Dillinger. He looked close to Dillinger, but not Dillinger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Dillinger had had some plastic surgery, and there there's a lot of things. So I. Ended up writing a book about it because it was one of those like lifelong things. So I did a book in 2016 called "One Night at the Biograph," um, which is about Dillinger's career and mostly about this afterlife of Dillinger. Was he really killed at the Biograph? Anyway, so that's something that I've always been interested in. Well, it turns out that some of Dillinger's descendants, that a few you know steps down the line, mm-hmm. have come to believe that maybe all of these things that have been said and I wasn't the first person to say them. I mean, they were being said first in the 30s, but in the 70s, it was kind of a big thing for a while and nobody's really talked about it since then until I started bringing it up about 25 years later and I've been talking about it ever since. And um, now these relatives are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, these autopsy records don't match and this and that. So uh. they have gotten an order to uh, exhume Dillinger's body um, and test the DNA and see if it's really him. Now, it's going to take a little work because Dillinger's father had his body encased in concrete, uh, because they were afraid somebody was going to steal his body because this was the, the, the era of the sideshow circuit. And sure. they were putting Bonnie and Clyde's death car on display. And, uh, and actually the Dillinger family went out on the sideshow circuit for a while as doing a crime doesn't pay show, you oh, know, uh, but you know, with the idea that they may have known that Dillinger had survived. Sure. But anyway, so, I mean, it's going to be a while before the DNA comes back, Mm -hmm. but I find it interesting. So, um, anybody who's interested in that, if you want the whole story, pick up the book. It's, it's, um... I don't know. It was a fun book to write and it's, it's just called one night at the biograph. And so if you're curious about what's going on here, um, that will answer your questions.
1: Yeah. We were, we were talking about with the bartender downstairs and you were like glowing about it. I know. Well, once I start
0: talking about Dillinger, I get very excited because it's just one of those lifelong interests of mine. I know I've got a bunch of them. I know that we get into, you know, Oh, the black Dahlia. Oh, it's Lizzie Borden. Oh, it's the St. Louis exorcism. Oh, it's the limp family. But Dillinger is another one of those things as Cody and I we're talking and we wished we would have added an evening with John Dillinger to our schedule. So if the My point ends. is, the point is, is that if you'd like to see something, if you'd like to come to something like that, one of those evening whisks that we do, let us know. I yep. mean, tweet at us, you know, post at us, send us an email, whatever. And I'll see if I can add one to the schedule. If people want to hear it, then I want to talk about it. Will you have so a fedora we'll see what I do. On I will not. Suit? I will not. Okay, I um, So, but Cody might. So might. there you go. Is he so. your favorite bank robber? Well, there is no better bank robber than Dillinger. You know, we we talked about that a lot is, you know, we were laughing. uh, We were talking about a a comedian who said that back in the the 30s that all you had to do to rob a bank was not be there when the police showed up. (laughs) So um, that pretty much is the, the answer to everything. But yeah. You know, it's just one of those things. I mean, he became such a legend and I, I try not to glorify criminals. I'm not one of those guys. Right. You've heard me say people talk about, oh, my favorite serial killer. And I'm like, listen, no, 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 no. don't say that. That's, you know, you could be interested right. in the most intriguing crimes, yeah. but don't don't say stuff like that. I because don't like I don't like that's that creepy either. and weird. And, you know, and so with Dillinger, I mean, he created a legend by you know, I was explaining to to Cody and Amy, our bartender, that, you know, he created this legend because he, you know, told an, an old farmer, hey, I don't want your money, I only want the bank's money. So this legend created that Dillinger was this Robin Hood. He wasn't, you know, but on the other hand, the banks were the enemy in the 1930s in the middle of the Great Depression. So somebody who's knocking over banks, you know, people didn't see that as such a bad guy. And, the FBI didn't even exist at the time. And, and what did exist was a, you know, what a mess. I mean, and then that's kind of a big part of my book is it's not so much about it's a lot about Dillinger, but it's a lot about the birth of the FBI, which came along to chase people like Dillinger. But, you know, they spent most of their time making them look like idiots, yeah. you know, um, for years. So I don't know. Anyway, I can I can talk about Dillinger all day. So let's not we got to get we, we got to get into this. One, yeah, we got to get into this and maybe we will. Maybe we'll do a couple of bonus episodes before we kick off season four, which we're already talking oh. about, which we gave you just a little bit of a teaser about last Uh, in the last episode, all we can tell you, there's going to be a lot of ghosts, but we're not telling you what it is. Right. So it's coming just a little bit later. We'll tell you about what's coming. We We only have a few episodes left in this season, so I want to enjoy these episodes before we move on to anything else. But we are getting kind of excited. And knowing us, we'll end up breaking. And about season five. So I know we're already talking about season five. We'll end up breaking
1: and telling people what the episode, what the season about. No, we episodes. I'm not telling them. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. We're not doing it. All right. Let's move on real quick. We have a couple of, uh, review oh, listener yeah, reviews yeah, yeah. that I want to talk about right. uh this this one is from dude it's jim <laughs> 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 so is his name jim i'm going to guess so i'm guessing dude, a safe it's bet. jim dude um it's the title amazing a fun and educational podcast I don't believe in ghosts, but I love the history behind the hauntings. I just finished the Limp story, and I'm sad to see it end. I highly recommend this to anyone who loves history and ghosts, even if they don't believe. My only complaint that I noticed more on the Limp podcast, it seems that Troy's monologue is too fast. What like do you mean too fast? Ra- yeah, you're <laughs> trying to say I talk too fast? I yeah. don't understand what you mean by that. I, I'm very
0: confused. Yeah, Why, where? Please explain. <laughs> yes, like that. Oh. Uh, like he's on a race. Other than Well, that, no, I think it's because they're so fucking long <laughs> sometimes. Anyway, sorry, so guys. So this, this was I, This one was really long. So, so. I,
1: I recognize this review, and then yeah. if you look at this, it says updating this. So I listen okay. to the Limp Family again in season two. Probably my favorite series in season two and maybe the whole podcast. Also, the sound is 100 times better now than season one. Cody's been oh, doing God. a great <laughs> job. Keep <laughs> yeah. it up. Yeah. And that, that's something people
0: talk to us about all the time. Like, you hey, don't understand we recorded season one in a box, well, in an actual literal cardboard box. <laughs> I'm no, just kidding. But it sounds like it. But so. a, c- a
1: couple of things. We, first off, I know that the sound is all over the place. Um, one, I'm learning what we're doing. Two, we, uh, we're, traveling. we're traveling all over the well, place. Place when we're recording, yeah. um, and we're it's a side job. We're trying to figure it out, but um, so but we have plans it keeps to get better equipment. Better.
0: Keeps getting better, right, And it keeps and getting better. Four, I think it's going to be even better. Sure. So thank you all. Thanks for sticking to our with pa- us. Like, thanks to our Patreon people on that yep, one because they have really possible. made it possible.
1: Sure. So thank you so much for listening um, and thank you for updating the review. I really appreciate yeah, it. If we yeah, get guy cool. if that, like just get that guy star. that gave us the
0: one star to, uh, that gave us a glowing review with one star. Dude, it means five is good, not I one. Know, I but know,
1: but I, I still appreciate it. This next one's <laughs> from uh, NSTCL. Just titled AHP, uh, short and to the point. It says, I love the history part of the show. I also like the conversation afterwards. So that means they love the whole thing. Well, they must love the whole thing. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Uh, this next one, this last one's from uh, Breeze. HXME. Uh, I don't just, know
0: why you try to figure those out. D- but, yeah. it is, it, the
1: title the title's just intriguing. It says, the narrative, topics, content, and history are all really well-researched and communicated. I'm intrigued every episode. My only issue, and minor, is the audio quality, which we just addressed. Yeah, we're working it's on it. It's a totally fair thing to say. Yeah, it is. It's a totally oh, fair I thing totally to say. I totally
0: agree. Um, I think it's just... Should it's, I tell people how I've been recording the monologues until these last two episodes? Probably not. No, so we won't tell you. But so. thank you so much. But it's,
1: it was bad. It means a lot, though, that even like i think that that shows that the content we're producing is good mm-hmm. because even though despite the audio being all over people the place still people still listen yeah. and i promise you i i read we are every working on it. i read and cry ob- over every review or email i get about the audio and we're addressing it and um, thank you so much we're we're fixing it all right, so we're going to dive into what I'm going to assume gonna get is the longest the window episode we
0: Yeah, I'm, this is the longest episode we've ever done. And, and uh, but we're we're getting close to the end. And we're yeah, so we're trying to So there were some things I wanted to and you know, the part of it was and, and again I'm I, I hopefully I, nobody complains because it's too long. I think that okay. getting more more yeah. content of a free podcast is a good thing. Right. We but, gotta do the story
1: justice. Right. Too. And
0: I wanted to make sure that the story all gets out there. And there were things that were in this particular episode that I felt needed to stay in one episode. Yeah. I mean I could have split this up into two or three, but Would I didn't see the need and- for it. Um, and that's why we ended up with a couple of shorter episodes as we went because That was a, a, it was a complete part of the story, we can leave it alone. Yeah. But this needed more. I, we needed to get, you know, we needed to find the search for Kelly. We needed to get Kelly's trial in here. Yep. And uh, well, his first one, yes, <laughs> as it turned out. Uh, but the second one is much shorter because it's pretty much the exact same trial. Well, anyway, we'll get into that Getting next time. Um, and next time we'll wrap up a lot of the storylines with a lot of the characters. We will see finally the end of most of the characters in the story next time. Um, Reverend Kelly, on the other hand, will not be going away anytime right away. But, you know, Great. We'll, we'll have some more Reverend Kelly. But he is the creepiest dude. Yeah. I so, mean, the <laughs> pictures, uh, you know, the photos that you see of him. I mean, the descriptions, the things that he did. And, you know, what we know of were things that were reported you know, they were in the files and they were reported in the newspapers mm-hmm. in 1917. Yeah. Imagine if this dude had been around now, uh, what we would have heard what we about. we would have found out. Because, I mean, this, this is the kind of guy that would have been downloading all kinds of, you know, porn on his computer. And, you know, if it was now. But he's Child got porn. some serious problems. Well... But apparently he liked young women, too, because he was soliciting through the mail, which you did not do in 1917, well, he went to trying jail to for get that. girls to pose nude for him. Hey, as long as they didn't have, even know what she looked as like, long as long as they're of consenting care. age, I don't yeah, have any I know. problems I with know, that. But um but I get still, it, he's still creepy. He's still creepy. He and, reminds me of you remember
1: Children of the Corn, that little Isaac
0: yeah, guy. He's kind of that. Yeah, yeah. just a little creepy. He's dude. five foot two, yeah. which makes him like the same height as like most of the limbs, I've I've realized. <laughs> right. <okay>. Um, but <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with it. But they they took that whole creepy little man thing in a whole different direction. They were the had the Napoleon thing going on. Right. He's just um He's just creepy. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the stuff with his wife, who was like, you know, six feet tall. Yeah. And, it, you it know, should, treats him like a child. Right. You know, so you, you gather that. I was kind of that's a creepy relationship, that too. That. Well, it's some kind of relationship. Um, that was the whole thing that Oscar Winstron. you know, 50 years later was still wondering exactly what it meant when she said they'd never had normal sex. What does that even mean? Just a bunch of weird role-playing stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I I don't want to know. I don't really want... See, that's the thing. I don't want to think about it that hard. (laughs) You know, it's right. just too weird. That's that's kind of what I said in the last episode is the, these agents were going after, you know, Reverend Kelly and they're digging up dirt. And I, I got a feeling they found out a lot more than they wanted to know. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, but let's get let's sure. get rolling. All
1: here. right. So Velisca, Iowa, uh, we have Finding Kelly, which I can only imagine was called Operation to Catch a Predator. Yeah, right. Exactly <laughs> right?
0: right. So <laughs> if we <laughs> could have got that guy in from NBC, that exactly. would have been great. Chris Hansen. Yeah, yeah Chris have a Hansen. seat right there. Um, oh. So Havner and Winston <laughs> Uh, they have to
1: find this strange little man. Uh, and it's later discovered that when they you know, pretty much had the grand jury stuff come out, he was, uh, he had at that time been preaching in Sutton, Nebraska right. and they recruit an agent. And he wasn't hiding. Right. He yeah, He was just he living had no his idea. normal
0: life. He had no idea that he, had, he was being indicted. He's just bouncing um, around wherever we pay him. I mean, you would him, think right? that he would, well, he, of course he, you know, spent years talk, telling everybody that, you know, people were after him. Yeah. You know, because so he's yet another of his, you know, mental issues. But eventually they were after I know. Him, so right? does that really, yeah. Are you really paranoid when someone's really after exactly. you? Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you or whatever. Um, so they recruit an agent, uh, Theodore Passwater, to find him.
0: Passwater? I know. Come well, on. Well, I don't. It just seems rude. It's not a name I've. Heard in recent times. I know. So, it's an like, older name it seems. Just but who would choose that? I Someone don't know. chose
1: that last name at one point. I'd well, like, at
0: some point they did. It's
1: so, like, hey, pass me that
0: water. No, okay. So, but he's in St. Louis. But yeah. Yeah. So he's, I mean, this guy's good at his job. Yeah. I mean, he finds him right away. He does. So, so yeah. And but, he ends up following to Alto Pass, which is in the middle of nowhere in Southern Illinois, is this tiny little town. Uh, but he managed to follow in there. Uh, but Wilkerson had already found him. Right. So, right. So, but he, so Password tracks him down
1: on uh, May 4th, Star Wars Day, of course. Um, he, he, so he knows where Kelly is, but he can't
0: move on Well, him. Havner wants to delay it as long as possible. He wants him to make sure he knows where he is and he stays on his trail, but they weren't ready to go to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember, they came right off the whole debacle with the dope sheet with wilkerson yeah. and that went on for weeks and so now the grand jury only spent four days deliberating before they indicted kelly well there's an arrest warrant out for him but they're not ready to go to trial and if they arrested him and brought him back which is of course what ended up happening the X is amount it, of time or something. right it caught him off guard and they weren't ready so they delayed as long as they could because right. they just didn't have their material together. Well you mentioned too that if they arrest
1: him and plan to charge him with it, they can't like charge anybody, anybody else. else. Oh, okay.
0: Right. So that was the whole thing it, that was the whole thing with Wilkerson's people is that they thought, well, they they you know, they they had this deep conspiracy that, oh well, they're gonna charge Reverend Kelly and so just because that way they can't charge Frank Jones. Oh God, you know, <laughs> you know it's just, just like after a while horse, some man. of these names that keep coming up and it's like the names are Vena Tompkins, Alice Willard. I mean, you keep seeing these same names. You want to beat your head against the wall, but it's like, if I hear one more time that we want to charge Frank Jones, it's just like, God, give it a rest already, you know, but this episode is not about Frank Jones. So we gotta, yeah, we gotta stick with what it's about because it's a long episode. Although there is some Frank Jones drama in the middle, which is my favorite part of the entire, (laughs) and I, and I have to be honest with you. I spent a lot of time cracking myself up during that story. So Cody had his hands full um, trying to edit that because there are actually several times where I start laughing and and had to stop. There's so, a good chance that yeah. some of that will make it into the yeah, beginning Yeah, some of it, of this yeah. Episode. Some of it you're probably going to hear, but. People was, said they like the outtakes, so yeah. I'm
1: going oh, to keep including those. Um, so, like I said, he, kn- he knows where Kelly is. He can't arrest him, but Wilkerson somehow, like, evades him and they get out. Do you think Wilkerson knew Passwater was there? No, I there? don't think he
0: did at first. I think he did eventually. I think he realized there was an agent in town. He probably spot him on the street and mm. realized that somebody was watching him. Um, it's a tiny, tiny town. Right. And so he probably realized there was another stranger in town that you know, he was suspicious about. So he decided that he was going to get Kelly to Omaha where he could find he found this attorney yep. to represent him. But then he sent all of his suitcases and personal belongings on ahead head to Kansas City. And this is the part that I loved is that he signed, he paid the receipts, paid for everything in cash and signed the receipt FF Jones. Yeah. Now that's something that never gets revisited because I mean, even though later on, like they mention course it, Havner right? mentions it and realizes, you know, says, oh, you know, what a scumbag this guy is kind of thing. But I think he had something else in mind, Mm -hmm. but it didn't because of what happened to him next, where he ran into more problems. I don't think he was ever able to execute his plan. But my guess is that he was going to make it look like Frank Jones was covering up Kelly so that, you know, he would keep him hidden. And I I don't know. I think he had some other plan because there's no good reason. I mean, other than dislike, but that's still You know, with Wilkerson, he always had some kind of weird convoluted plan going on. And I'm sure he had some idea that he could fuck over Frank Jones. Right. And so he started he started signing Kelly's bills. F.F. F. Jones. Is that F. Frank Jones? Yeah, that's Frank Jones. That's I mean, that's what that we, we always call him for the podcast. We've called him Frank Jones, but. You know, technically when he signed everything, it was, it was always FF Jones. Like his business was oh. like the, 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 uh, farm implement company and everything was FF Jones. I thought it was fuck Frank. Jones. No, 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 no. It was actually, that was actually his name. That was his, what he normally used as his signature. Right. So I think he was trying to do something there, some kind of further frame up and, mm-hmm. it, but it didn't, pan out. it didn't pan out. I'm kind of so. surprised,
1: honestly, that Wilkerson didn't like have. Kelly killed or something to like even more across a crazy line to make it look like Frank uh, yeah, was Yeah, really you know, I kind of to-
0: am too. Um, I mean, I'm surprised it didn't go further, but you know, I guess, I don't know. What do we say about Wilkerson? It's hard to give him some kind of, credit for something. But, you know, I mean, as we talked about in our last episode, the only reason he was trying to help Kelly was to screw over Havner right. and to make sure that it was no one else got charged for something that he wanted Frank Jones to go down for. Sure, um, You know, Kelly ended up being, I mean, he's a great suspect, but he ended up being, you know, a lot of, flash but very little substance mm-hmm. and which was the whole story with the whole Frank Jones conspiracy. Yeah. It's a lot of it's a lot of flash and a lot of bullshit but it was really no substance. It's yep. the same thing. Yep. So I, I'm not surprised that Wilkerson was attracted to it. Sure.
1: Oh, well, I mean so. I guess yeah, Wilkerson probably tried to figure it out every other angle and it's like which is the one I can exploit the most sure. and had it yeah. been killed him, he probably would have. Yeah but.
0: yeah absolutely I think he would have done whatever he needed to do at that yeah. point. Yeah so. So, so
1: Kelly's attorney uh, like you mentioned AL sudden, eventually it's like, Hey, the best route here is to turn yourself in. So he turned well, himself in. Right.
0: And he had a good idea for that too. It wasn't so much, he could have kept him on the run forever yeah. because I mean, 1917 was a lot different from now. You just I go mean, anywhere can't, and be whoever yeah, you want. Yeah. You can't, there, there was cell phone pictures. There's no, you know, internet or CCTV. anything. You could have just take off and nobody's ever going to see you again. And I think that in this case, he knew that he could probably get him off if he rushed him into a speedy trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's one of the Our constitutional rights is a right to a speedy trial. So if you turn yourself in before the state is ready to put you on trial, they're screwed, which is essentially what happened here. But they Um, they fixed a little bit of that. They they did. They 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 managed to delay things a couple of times. Um, But, you know, just like when he finally did show up in Red Oak, he sat there and they couldn't even arrest him because the sheriff wasn't there. So Oscar Winston's trying to find the sheriff and he's calling every, I mean, that in itself is comical. Sure. You know, that this guy's been in town for six hours and for four hours he sat in the, you know, in the, you know, county attorney's office. What awkward conversation. Yeah. No kidding. What what did they talk about? You know, he just sat in there with his lawyer and his wife and sat there and I don't know. This guy's so creepy. He probably sat there and giggled. I, know. I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. Well, this, so, it totally creeps me out. So you're so. So you,
1: you're a researcher and it would have loved to have been one of these like PI gumshoe kind of guys. Sure. How in, how in this, in that day and age, how do you find somebody that's
0: on the run like that? Well, I think, I mean, that's a good question um, because past water Found out where he was pretty quick. Yeah. So my guess is, no, it really Mm -hmm. wasn't. I mean, all that stuff is kind of close around Nebraska and that area. I mean, St. Louis, not so much. That's pretty far away. But I think probably what happened is that he went to where Kelly lived first, which was Macedonia. And he'd been working on this for a little bit Mm -hmm. before he found out where he was. And enough people knew who Kelly was and knew enough about him. That they probably told him, well, he's, you know, in Nebraska doing this. And we don't know where his wife was during this time. For all we know, he went to Kelly's house and, you know, Laura Kelly told him, oh, well, he's in Nebraska. So he went to Nebraska and found out he'd left there and had gone on to St. Louis to visit people he knew. So I'm sure he must have told somebody because he wasn't on the run. Right. You know, he was um, he really just was living his ordinary life. He wasn't
1: on the run. Like Wilkerson took him.
0: There, right? Are yeah. You, well, no, no. Wilkerson caught up with him in St. Louis oh, and then took, and then him, took to, him to Alto Pass. Oh, okay, gotcha. Thinking that he could take him there and nobody would know he was there. Gotcha. And then he could kind of get his ducks in a row and what he, he found him an attorney and I'm sure he spent plenty of time coaching him on what to say and right. that kind of thing. Right. But I mean... It, that that doesn't seem like a guy who's very coachable to me. Nope. <laughs> you know, nope. he seems like a bit of a loose. Can you cannon, imagine you know? how annoyed Wilkerson must have been dealing <sighs> with with based Kelly on there? everything that everyone else had already said about Kelly and his weird habits and some of the stuff I talk about in this episode and the you know um, because I got into him a little deeper in this episode mm-hmm. than we ever have before. You've I've been always, wanting to. I've always been pointing out to that he was a complete weirdo and a psycho and spit right. all over people and you know when he talked and things, but you know, this is a weird dude. And I, I can't, I can't, I mean, people never kept him around for long, you know, when he would come to these churches and preach, but how long could you tolerate this guy? Apparently not long, but the funny thing about it was, and and I pointed this out when I was telling the story is, but somehow this guy always found a job. How, Yeah, Yeah. how is this possible? Um, I mean, our, are there religious denominations that are so desperate for ministers? I don't know, man. I guess. I don't know. You look at all the, you know, you look at things in today and you think of all of the scandals and things that have gone on with a lot of churches what, do, what and, do you mean? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and so you kind of think, has this stuff been going on forever? Yes. Is this where people go to hide? Yes. You know, deviants go to hide behind, you know, yes. church <laughs> facades? I... Yep. I mean I, I mean, I'm not even going to I mean we don't even have to get into I mean the recent stuff about because we, we have more and we recent can't. stuff about Alton and St. Louis and, and with a lot of Catholic priests yeah, and stuff. Where I went to school. I great. know, I know. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like to lump everybody under one umbrella sure. because there's a lot of really great, decent, wonderful people. And out I there. met some um, great, yeah, yeah, great yeah. priests. There's and some, Holy some great Mitten. priests. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. And there's been a lot of ministers over the years that I've met that I have really liked. I mean, a really good friend who is a, a Methodist minister, um, Lisa's minister, um, Pastor Adam is a great guy and has never, I mean, you know, I don't I'm not a church goer, uh, but I know. But every time I see him, he's always so kind and so welcoming. He's never I don't even think he even noticed that I'm covered in tattoos. And, you know, I mean, he's never I mean, he's a good guy. So I'm I'm not I'm not trying to lump this in, but there are apparently People can slide by behind this facade. And uh, Reverend Kelly obviously is one of them. How did this guy not get bounced out of the church after he got arrested for soliciting girls to pose in the nude and all this other stuff in the window peeping? I mean, he was arrested for it multiple times. Yes. But maybe that wasn't back then. Maybe that wasn't seen as the same kind of thing that it would be now. Now you get, now you get put on a sex offenders list, but back then, you know, it was a scolding, I guess. Hey, listen, don't do that. That's not a nice thing to do. Right. You know, I mean, i got a guy coming forward complaining that, but see, that's the thing though. He's complaining about, you know, Kelly leaking, lurking outside their window at night, looking at his wife change her nightgown. Well, so this isn't a young woman, it's not a child. Mm -hmm. So other times it's young women, other times it's it's children. Right. You know, it's just, this guy's like an equal, equal opportunity perv. Mm-hmm. That's all I can figure. Yeah. Anyway, but let's, let's, I'm on a tangent here. So no, let's, 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 let's well, keep going. Well, they should have kept so. him in that hospital in DC for probably, longer. Probably longer than they did. Uh, but, but yeah. Um, so we'll, but yeah, but see this whole story, all of this stuff about Kelly, this was all stuff that, that Havner managed to get into the newspapers.
1: Yes, and so he yeah. kind of breaks the Thompson law. Yeah, uh, Not kind of, he He, he does. influences
0: the jury, so to right. speak. Right,
1: and so, what was this, just short-sightedness on his part? No. Did he just not care? He what do just you, didn't what do care. Well, he
0: just figured, you know, at this point, you know, Wilkerson was still doing it. And as we'll, we'll talk about in this ep, you know, as I talked about in the story, yeah. Wilkerson just got more and more blatant about doing it. Yeah. Um, and so they just decided, let's just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Favell told Havner, um, who was a guy who we, we, didn't talk about him much in the last episode. Um, we probably should have, but this was a guy who really seemed to have his shit together. Mm-hmm. Um, he is probably to me, one of the most impressive attorneys, okay. Involved in this story. He was just Not a, a high bar. He was a special... I know, but he was a special... Well, I don't know. I like Havner. He was... A, and I like Oscar Winston, too. Well, they no, they had saying, their acts together. Havner's
1: but, great, but I think the, yes, the but bar is I really think, low. Yeah,
0: the, the bar is set pretty low, but I think Favel was a guy who really had it together and really was serious about this it Mm -hmm. took a dislike to wilkerson immediately which puts him way up in my normal person should Uh, but his his advice to habner was listen stay away from this Mm -hmm. just leave it alone don't engage Uh, if you engage you're going to get drugged deeper down because they'd all seen what had happened to frank jones when he decided to oh i'm gonna sue anybody who says bad things about me man dude you can't You can't do that. If I tried to sue everybody who left us a bad review, we, you know, fuck you and your pizza. You know, it's just uh, I can't you can't do that. You know, you've got to move on. And that's that was I think he was a good influence on on Havner, Um, you know, and when it came to this Kelly stuff, you know, I think uh, Havner just went after the newspapers. But, but I mean, you know, that hasn't changed. I just rewatched the people versus OJ Simpson. That's I told great. you about that. I love that. But I mean, that's all those guys did was use the newspapers and yeah. use the media to influence everything about that case. That's and smart. nothing's changed. I mean, that's how it was then. And, you know, Havner made it, you know, you got two sides when it goes to, Kelly goes to trial. You've got, first, you've got people who've been influenced by the newspaper story Mm-hmm. About Kelly and all the pervy stuff he'd done. And then on the other side, you've got all of these people who'd been to Wilkerson's, you know, rallies that he's throwing all over the area no in small unbiased. towns and theaters. Yeah. There's, there's no good jury pool. I mean, they ran out of jurors and had to bring more people in because so many people were biased and you know, there were people who lied Oh, to course. get on that jury. I mean, well, there were they people. They ran out of people. That, yeah, that are, but, but they ran out of strikes. strikes. They, they, they okay. couldn't get rid of them. So they're going to end up with people who are looking at this from both directions as we found out. Yeah. You know, people just thought he was crazy and other people just didn't believe he did it at all. Yeah. And um, I, I've kind of got to tell you in the end of this, I think I'd have been on the side of the guy who just refused to say anything other than he was insane. Yeah. And wanted him locked up. This is a dude that needed to be locked up. I'm sorry, but he did. No, we were doing and we're normally, I'm the last guy to say that as someone who everyone I know, including myself have had issues with mental illnesses. And I don't think there's a, I don't find there to be a stigma about Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, Unless you're that crazy, yeah. When you're when you're harming other people, when you're that nuts, you need to be locked away. Well, he legit and, said, "Don't let me out because I don't yeah, want to hurt." I'm going to do it to somebody else because God's going to tell me to kill somebody else. But it, I mean, that confession was all made up, anyway, true. But still, but come on, but still, I mean, this was a guy who really believed that kind of thing, and he probably. Needed to be locked up. Yeah, but anyway. So we're jumping ahead. If you're, I know.
1: I know. Yeah. So let's a little bit more uh, in, in depth. Well, there. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back and drag us on even longer. Let's talk a little bit about Lynn George Kelly. born in England yeah. in 1878.
0: Came to America with his wife Laura around around 1904. Yeah, we, and and that's some of the stuff we covered before. Sure. So we didn't get into what he did when he got to Velisca. We never talked about that before. Yes. And The Anarson people.
1: Yes. So okay you mentioned bizarre character, sexual deviant, obsessed with becoming a minister, but was he a murderer? That's yeah. really what we're right. doing That's here. And the you question. just you don't believe he was murdered. I murderer. don't. I do not. You think he was I do there? Think, but he oh wasn't. yeah,
0: we'll get into that. And yes. I've hinted at that a little bit, but um in in the the episode after next, we'll get into that a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. And what I really think happened that night and how Reverend Kelly was involved. Yep but not as a murderer. Right. Just as a bird. It's just such a, <laughs> it's such a
1: weird, the timing is so yeah. random, but so I mean, strange. yeah, so definitely a peeping Tom. Uh, ends up freaking out the family that he's staying with by being a weirdo. Um, becomes, yeah, becomes a woman.
0: I, I love that there were like two great quotes from the the, the Inarsan people was that they, um, well, first there was the the, the mom who sat on the stairs sleep. wrapped in a blanket because she didn't want to make sure, make sure he didn't go upstairs near her kids. And then the uh, the son who said, it was the weirdest sermon i'd ever heard <laughs> that was
1: like my favorite quote yes you know it's a different time because like yeah. one right then like no you're out of my house and two if i catch you peeping outside well, the yeah, window i'm beating yeah, the shit you. Yeah, yeah. it. so it's
0: just a different time but he was a minister i know see? and people are cutting him a lot of slack i know because I know. Of that's that. probably
1: how this shit happens I guess. honestly I you guess, get cut man. slack yeah, yeah i guess
0: um, so he
1: becomes a major suspect in the murders and Kelly seemed to be doing everything possible to make himself right. look, look guilty, guilty. Yeah. so he knows things he shouldn't know we'll get right. back to Right, how. and we'll talk
0: about that later in a couple episodes uh, yeah. potentially bloodstained shirt yes and He's I obs- believe that too you think it was yeah, blood I do okay. think he had blood on his shirt he was obsessed would with you the just, case why would you not just throw it away why would you take that to the La laundry seriously Try, back then it they didn't have a lot shirt. of clothes and they really liked that shirt I don't care it fits yeah. so well yeah it could be my favorite shirt. I got blood on it. I'm going to throw it away. Form fitting in the early <laughs> oh, yeah, 1900s oh, was man. a rare was a rare thing. Well, yeah, he's <laughs> got to figure he's been buying from the boys' department for how long? So you know, but anyway, go
1: ahead. Uh, okay. Anyway, so but he keeps he keeps saying slay and slay utterly. Yeah, and that which phrase is creeps me out. freaky
0: right there. That so phrase Which, by me out. the way, I've never found in the Bible. So oh, I should yeah, point you, that you out. It's that that, supposed yeah. to be a biblical quote, but I have never found that in any way, shape or form in any reference whatsoever. It wasn't in the story of Abraham? No, not what I'm, a lot of vibes it. I'm not from. finding it anywhere. And um, hmm. so I'm not sure where this came from, uh, but, you know, people said they heard him say it and they probably did. Sure. Uh, because, you know, and he later says this because it was a sermon he was working on, but. Um, of course, by that time, you know, God was already talking to him and telling him to kill children, uh, which I think we can rule that out no right. matter what you believe in. But, oh, no, uh, well, in I Bible. don't know. Then we're back to Abraham again. <laughs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> I know. But we'll get in trouble. Anyway, all I'm saying, though, yeah, because Lisa will really be mad. Um, <laughs> so mad. But my point of that is, is that, yeah, I mean, yes, I do think it was blood. So. Okay, I think that was my point. Fair so. enough. Go ahead.
1: He, um, he's been, uh, he's getting paranoid and asking weird questions, convinced the cops looking for him. Eventually they actually are, but yeah, that's right. a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But so he does things like he puts out an ad for a stenographer <laughs> and he starts getting creepier and
0: creepier in his responses. Yeah. I, I mean, love that part where he has all these questions for this woman, oh, for his high class literary yeah. work that he's putting together. And he just
1: wants a woman to pose
0: nude. Yeah. For well, he just paintings. wants to look at a naked girl. Right. That's but he, all. But he got arrested for this. Yes. So, well, he's se- because he was sending her letters. Right. So. What's, time, what's you the could not send again? obscene material through the federal post. Even writings like that, Yes. Huh? I mean, that's how they shut down people like, um, you know, you get into the 40s and they shut down people like Betty Page and that kind of thing because the guy who was making those photographs and the magazines that she was in, they were sending them out in the mail Mm. and that was illegal. And it it didn't, it didn't change for years. And there's that famous quote uh, that finally went to the Supreme court and the judge said, you know, how do you know about pornography? So I'll know it when I see it. Right, And that's where that comes from. But back at that time, you could not send out Uh, lewd or lascivious things in the mail because Mm -hmm. it was a federal offense because you're, it's the post office. Yeah, well, yeah. It's like now if I shipped you, you know, like a loaded automatic weapon, I would be in trouble. This was (laughs) the same thing back then. Right, right. right. Well, I'll know it when I see it because I see it. Right. Send me all the porn. So, yeah. So, but you know, so he's soliciting this girl who then takes it to her pastor and says, yeah. whoa, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and would it be OK. You know, we're going to work late at night in a secluded private location, have dinner. And- I mean, seriously, I would not go to somewhere private with this guy. Well, I, I said that in my monologue. I wouldn't go with my clothes on. Yeah. And I'm a guy, let right. alone a girl. I right. mean, there's no way. I mean, if she met him in person, there's no way she would have. Right. It wouldn't have gotten this far. I it know. wouldn't have been an exchange of letters. Luckily, so. he's five two and ninety
1: pounds, but still probably dangerous. <laughs> right. Um, but he's placed in a jail in Sioux Falls, where he's alleged <laughs> to have made lewd advances to fellow prisoner, which is Prison. bizarre. I know. And and so I mean, like you said, equal
0: opportunity. It seems. Yeah. Across I, mean, I, it. I mean, I get it. I mean, ages, or I what? I get it. I mean, it's you know, he wants you know, he goes to a lot of effort to get you know, nude women to pose nude for him. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, you know, he's peeping into windows and stuff, but I, I've always been kind of like skeptical of these stories about how he's offering to like blow prisoners. Yeah. Jail. Oh, you don't think that's, I legit? don't know. I mean, maybe, I, and I suppose it's possible. I mean, it just doesn't seem to, I just wanted his, to fuck. It didn't matter. I, who. I don't, maybe, I mean, it just didn't really seem to fit his usual motive, Ryan but I GMO. mean, I guess you know. I, I mean, I guess the times possible, get tough. Like just and, I guess you know, I, I don't know. I can see it going it just either seems way. Weird. I suppose. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose you're right.
1: Um, but so he did that. Maybe did that stuff. But claimed to be guilty of murder and uh, yeah, yeah. generally acted ir- idea. irritable, yeah. and deranged. Yeah. He's um, eventually sent to a federal hospital in Washington D.C. for several months. And but he's paroled into
0: his wife's custody. Yeah, which I you know. I mean, where's yeah, she been? I know. Are you not watching this guy? And I mean, so seriously, I, how is he doing all this stuff? That's what, and you're a, not paying any attention. There's a whole Freudian thing that they whole have going on. Going on. Um, but then he gets arrested for the shit again, yeah, and maybe he just again keeps doing it. Yeah. yeah, two more times. He just keeps doing it. He can't stop. Yes. he can't stop. It's compulsive. Right. He and so
1: he goes to preach in Sutton, Nebraska. Still paranoid. Detectives are looking at him. They're uh, looking for him. Somebody's giving him a job. Right. Exactly. So keeps getting jobs, and he's. And another thing is important is he. He wanders the city at night. And that's what people have said about him. And that that comes back. To the whole the whole thing. Yeah. So let's jump back real quick to Villisca uh, with what I've titled Wilkerson's latest arrest.
0: Right. Well, and they brought, you know, they brought Kelly back. So he's in Red Oak and they're getting ready for trial. Yes. And Havner's doing everything. I mean, that whole story about every. Weird thing he'd done Mm -hmm. was something that Havner had planted in the newspapers. True. But yeah, but they're not happy about it because he's now tainted the jury pool, just like Wilkerson has. Yep. So it's an equal opportunity. (laughs) <laughs> it's an equal I was gonna say it's an equal opportunity taint, but perhaps I should not say that when we're talking about Reverend Kelly and his perversion. Right, so we'll right. leave
1: that alone. Uh, so basically they're trying to figure out where they can hold Kelly because they don't they don't want to get killed or anything weird to happen. So Judge orders Kelly be held in Logan, which is eighty miles away. Um, and this is where James Risden, who's one of Habner's best agents, one of his new lives. agents, right, yeah. right. Uh, Wilkerson tells the press that he didn't believe in the charges against Kelly and eventually opens an office in Red Oak to <laughs> What, God, practice yeah. well, law? Well, he says
0: he's going to practice. Well, you have to remember, he was an attorney. He he was a member of the bar in Texas. Right. I mean, I know we're asking you to go back a lot of episodes sure. to remember this. But I forgot this at Wilkerson first, honestly. was an attorney before he became a private detective. I just think he found out he could make more money as a private detective yeah. and as yeah. a scam artist. Anyway, he decided he was going to try and get his license in Iowa, but- <laughs> when the attorney general of Iowa hates your guts, you're never going to get admitted to he the bar. He did to himself. So he opened an office there, which they just use as like a clubhouse. Sure. Essentially is all it was. But then later, and I just kind of mentioned this in passing and we'll come back to it in our next episode. Um, he decided to run for office. Yeah, uh, the next we'll, year. We'll get there because that's going to be like the final straw okay. uh, for Wilkerson. But we'll get to that in, in our next episode. Great. I, I can't wait to see this guy yeah. get fucking broken. Yeah. Um, well, the- he almost got it on the. This one. Yes. With the burglary. Yeah, yes. So, which is my favorite part of this entire episode. It's the dumbest so, fucking story I've Yeah, have it's, it's like, how dumb were these guys? I mean. And they all have three know, names with the quotation. Yeah, we, all of them have a nickname. Yes, and I listed know, them all out. We'll squint talk about them. And Red, and, yeah. you know, and, you know. Why just, do you think they call him Squint? Yeah,
1: no kidding, right? So. <laughs> um So the state, basically the state's not ready to go to trial, so they
0: delay it. Yeah. Uh, with a surgery. Well, I think. yeah, I th- if Favel actually did have surgery, uh, he really did have, I mean, I just Sort of, I mean, I think they extended the amount of medical leave that he needed, sure. but he did have surgery at the Mayo Clinic. So whatever it was, and I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was it was serious, but not enough that they needed to delay it a month and a half. Right? Every I time think I think that was just a give them a little more cushion time
1: every time i hear the mayo clinic i think it's a condiment clinic. yeah no it's not, it's not it is not
0: i promise it's not is is a very so you know a very esteemed medical facility <laughs> right so,
1: right i don't mean to where belittle
0: they do not serve mayo so because it's, it's bad specifically for you. It's, it's a filled thing with fat so. right yeah the eggs okay
1: <laughs> um so wilkeson well we mentioned this Wilkinson's arrested in june for <laughs> attempted breaking uh, into jones store this but this was in february yeah it happened in february There's nobody so really followed on. yeah there was
0: just too much going on nobody really followed up on it and so the story is wilkerson
1: recruits a couple of people he recruits yeah. ed brick boiler to help him <laughs> and tells him hey dude
0: you're not gonna get in trouble oh yeah you're 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 fact acting you, as an official detective exactly. here. exactly i can but, advance but your on, the, career. on the other hand i'm gonna need to be away from here but why when this do you happens? need an alibi? yeah by. right exactly Scra- these uh, guys were just too dumb he must have picked some of the dumbest people he well
1: had. i mean honestly well yeah they
0: are pretty dumb and then so.
1: uh ed brings in william squint walker who right. eventually <laughs> <Right. laughs> brings in harry red knave. yeah yeah uh my, yeah, uh, my question, I just, my note was, what was, what's with these fucking names? Well, like,
0: everybody, I mean, lots of people had nicknames, but. I guess but, so, but. But I mean, you know, and if you, if you ever read the. Newspapers in like the 1920s, the newspaper reporters gave everybody a nickname, yeah. like all the Chicago gangsters. Oh, yeah. You know, okay. all had nicknames, even though half of them didn't go by those nicknames, but that's what they became as, right. you know, Tony Batters, Accardo and stuff like that. I mean, they heard, oh, yeah, they heard, we heard that he beat the hell out of somebody with a baseball bat. So we're going to call sure. him Batters, you know, Scarface Capone, you know, all uh-huh. that, you know, and, and, you know, all this stuff, you know, Snorky is what he really went by. That was his nickname. And most people don't know that God. because they think of Scarface instead. Right. And he would kill you if you called him Scarface. Ugh. It's like, yeah, it's like, um it's like um, uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel. Nobody called him Bugsy to his face. Or, uh, you know, the it just didn't baby happen. Babyface Nelson. Yeah, this the, he hated that nickname. Yeah, You know, um, so everybody had a nickname. And I, I, do, I'm, I'm, these guys probably had these nicknames. Mm. I mean, you know, Red and. Squint, I don't know, but you was know, squinty. But yeah. they made sure the newspaper reporters made sure they put him in, put right? The nicknames in there. I would so. be
1: uh, Cody
0: the Schnoz, Beck, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, I exactly. Um,
1: so. you'd be uh, Troy sleeves Apparently, Taylor, X Man, X yes, so, Troy yeah, the X Man yeah.
0: Taylor. But yeah, so I mean, you know, that everybody heard me tell that story, but I just I love that story, and that was the part where I. I did lose in the recording. I yeah. did, may have lost my place several times because I, I was wait. laughing. It was just funny. It's a funny well, they, story. They didn't want to do it. It's a dumb story. These guys, I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Three they, idiots. you know, they had this, you know, he couldn't, and, you know, Wilkerson being Wilkerson, couldn't just give him the damn gun. Sure. You know, he'd make it, he'd go put it somewhere Dude, and hide it in drop. a suitcase so it would be this, you know, big secretive, you know, secret agent thing because that was his whole deal. Right. And they, he gives him this crappy car that they run out of gas halfway there. They mm-hmm. have to get gas. You know, the car's barely running. You know, they get there. They how did they all pull off how the How robbery. did they know
1: again that the robbery was going to happen to be inside with the shotguns?
0: Well, stuff? somebody, somebody. Squealed. I'm going to guess our buddy J.H. Okay. is the one who told. Because I'm sure Wilkerson's buddies, you know, his inner circle probably knew it was going to happen. And so they were tipped off. So right. Frank and Albert and Hank Horton, the town marshal show and just hid out in the store. But they didn't know what night it would be, only that it was coming soon. So they just sort of sat around and waited each night until you know they finally got lucky. Right. But imagine you know when those guys went to the window and Hank Horton's. What if, what if that gun had not misfired? That's what I'm He'd saying. Like blown those two guys' it, his heads. It, it off. is a
1: funny, like it's an Andy Griffith show kind it is, of thing. But but had it not misfired, serious. he would
0: have blown someone's head yeah, off. Yeah, he would have. And, and but not thought twice about it. Yeah. And, Everything would have been fine. It would have been a justified shooting. Right. It's kind of like beating up prisoners that you've got in your jail cell. I mean, I mean if you blew somebody's head off who was getting ready to rob your store. Well, whatever. He's the town marshal, so right? That's the way it goes just in 1917. Shotgun to the but, head. But I mean, then the whole thing when you know when Horton and Albert go chasing him down the street and then he turns into a dead end alley. I mean, it was just like one clusterfuck right, after another. Right. That's you what know, you'd expect. and then he gets back and almost immediately they start telling. That's everybody. the thing they. Yeah. Re- Ratted themselves out. Well, yeah, these idiots can't keep their mouths shut. I mean these these guys are are not bright criminals, right? And so they just start telling everybody, and then they're rounded up. Yep. Uh, once in custody, they not
1: only confessed, but they talked openly about what had taken place. <laughs> yes. The newspaper reporters. start reports. telling
0: reporters about it, who I'm sure got a kick out of it. You know, know, it's amazing. Joan testifies about everything. But again, if no one had gotten their head blown off, it's funny. Yes. If he had blown those two guys' heads off, it would have been a whole different story. It's very
1: traumatic, yeah. yes. Uh, Jones testifies about everything in the safe, uh, which is embarrassing stuff about Wilkerson. And this is when you realize this is yeah. the real reason yeah, for Yeah, that the was – he, he had
0: nothing – somebody must have told him. Somehow he got knowledge – Well, he knew that Jones was digging because he'd already at that board meeting had come forward and said, hey, I've got all this information and said, well, now we've jumped ahead in time Mm -hmm. to June when Reverend Kelly gets brought in and we're getting ready for trial. But this happened way back right after that, right? right after that board meeting. So Wilkerson knew that Frank Jones had information about it because he started to talk and then, you know. Beeson jumped in and shot him up. Sure. So he knew he had this stuff. So where else would he keep it? Well, it is safe at the store. So this had nothing to do with collecting evidence. It had everything to do with him getting the stuff that Frank Jones had on it. Spectacularly backfired. Right. It went really bad. But on the other hand, it was kind of hard to pin this on him. That you, you had to try him not with burglary, but with conspiracy because mm, there. there were these laws that said that detectives – still at that time remember state oh, agents they were could brand new stuff, yeah. they could do shit like that back then because they were detectives hired by the state or by county officials to investigate a crime and You know, you can't do that now, but you could get away with stuff like that then. So Didn't you take it too
1: far though? Well see
0: cops you couldn't a cop couldn't go in and do that because of the Fourth Amendment, but a detective could because he's Um. not an official law enforcement figure, even though he was working for them. So it's 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 kind of yeah. confusing and there's some weird lines there so they decided to try him outside of Montgomery County where all his supporters were right. and try him in, in Adams County because they thought well we can maybe make this stick yeah. and then that turns into a complete clusterfuck too yeah. so
1: so Wilkerson is allowed to speak at the trial even though like he's not supposed yeah, to yeah well he know? wasn't
0: supposed to but Havner was like oh, you know hell with this you know and just sat down and gave up right? and then you know it started almost it's become a, sh- a fist fight it's with a Albert a show and, you know
1: okay whoever that judge is that he yeah. he did
0: not have control no, of that courtroom and no. it's obnoxious. Well, Albert, and that's what Habner said. Hey, what is this? A is this a vaudeville or another, show right. or are we doing a trial here? The vaudeville, or yeah. A Al, hearing here. Albert Jones tries
1: to bum rush. Yeah, bum rushing is held back. <laughs> uh, the shit show goes on for thirty minutes. Um, but well, we'll, at least
0: we have Sheriff Dunn now. Yeah. So we don't have Jackson anymore because he was Wilkerson's buddy. So right. he lost the election. So we've got a guy who doesn't really give a crap about James Wilkerson. Right. So he's already been convenient to have around. And he's the one who kept this fight from breaking out, which is right. good. So, And so Wilkerson loses this. Yes.
1: And then he decides, okay, I'm going to have another meeting at Red Oak, um, but it's broken up yep. quickly and by an injunction. Yeah. And so they got him kind of like to this is right,
0: right on, right on top of each other. Right. So he,
1: yeah, but he you know, he's going to
0: find a way around it. He, yes, he does. Still
1: manages to collect seven hundred dollars for Kelly's defense. Uh, eventually forms an organization <sighs> with a membership fee, uh-huh. of course, a club. And then in late July begins posing his one hundred
0: questions again to the crowd. Again. Yeah, and uh, which never were printed. That's what I liked. Well, is, eventually they, they were then, with the other one. right? Well, he, put the, he put Havner's in there, but he never printed the hundred questions with to Frank Jones sure. because if he had printed it then it could have been bordering on libel. Oh. So okay. he was after the 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 slander, slander trial thing. he was a little more careful about what he was doing. It doesn't want to leave a paper but, trail. You know, putting out yeah put it because Frank Jones was still was a private citizen by mm-hmm. this time. Havner was a public official. So you can say all kinds of things to a public official or about a public official, you know, about, you know, what you think of them and and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. As long as you're not threatened to kill them, you're okay. And so by putting out the pamphlet to questions to Havner, he can make money, right, which he can make money from, which he did, of course. Yeah, it's freaking ridiculous. I would love to see. Do you have what these hundred questions are for either of them? I do have the whole list. I don't print it because it's just monotonous. Well, of Um, yeah, it's just not. So I don't want to waste the paper. it's just, yeah, it's just Completely. I mean, we get the idea. We mm-hmm. we understand what he was going for.
1: I'll try so, to I'll try to pull them together if anybody's interested. I can yeah, link to, to, to them or something online that. or yeah. something like that, because um, I'm just curious to read them myself and see how many of them are just bullshit. Um, so OK, so before Kelly's
0: trial, it's set for September 4th. Um, and uh, what's his name? Well, Havner realized that, you know, they're going to have to try this case on just the evidence they have, which is he's got a weak weak case. It's very weak, I mean, it's very circumstantial. Right. That's the whole thing is he truly believes he's guilty, but he has only circumstantial evidence. I mean, he's got things that say that, you know, I heard this, you know, people heard him say these things. I mean, he's got a history of wandering around town and peeking in windows and stuff. And he may have had blood on his shirt, but we can't prove it. Right. There was no, you know, there wasn't any kind of test. And besides that, it was Five years. Five ago. years ago, yeah. So there's no way to prove that it was blood. I mean, it looked like blood, but was it? Who knows? So he really doesn't have a great case, which is the reason that he lost. Right. I mean, he doesn't have a great case. Doesn't matter how screwy or how nutty you are. Um, If you don't, if there's no case, you're not going to be found guilty.
1: Right. But on August 30th, uh, Reverend Kelly
0: confesses. Well, yeah, because he confessed so many times already. Right. So why not do it again? Why not? Let's see if we've got some, we've got something that we can really use for this trial. His, his actual confession. So they think. Right. And so, okay, September 3rd, I want to break down the teams a little
1: bit here because there's a lot of names going on. Yeah, there is. Representing Reverend Kelly. And a lot of them don't
0: matter. Right. You know, but you get the idea. Representing Reverend Kelly. uh, We have Thomas. Jay Hysham, is that him? Yeah, and then Sutton, who was the attorney that Wilkerson had hooked him up with. Right, John A. McKenzie, and Wilkerson's attorney, William Mitchell. Who was the guy who represented him in the scandal, or in the the slander trial. Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there's just so many names going on back and forth, I want to make sure everybody, for me, I need to be on the same page. At the prosecution table, we have Attorney General Horace Havner, uh, County Attorney Winstrand, Frederick
0: F- Favell, who's Bavel. the guy who I like, right. and then right. Hess, who was yes. another guy they just added to the team right, uh, to help with paperwork and all kinds of stuff. Yes. So. These all sound like fake names to me. I know. Um, I know. You hate the old men. <laughs> the,
1: the judge presiding over the trial was uh,
0: W.D. Boise? Boise? Yeah. Like Idaho yeah. or Iowa? Yeah, like like Idaho. Okay. Yeah, they, um, they brought him in because he was supposed to be, you know, this guy who runs a really tight ship didn't turn I, out that way. Eye roll emoji. <laughs> <You> <laughs> exactly. Know. Exactly. No, it yeah. does not turn out that way, but he's supposed to be this really, you know, really, really tight, run in a tight ship courtroom. Right. Kind of which, so, yeah, it does not hold no, up. No, it really doesn't.
1: Uh, long story short, Kelly's lawyers say the confession was coerced and it ends right. up getting withdrawn. Right. Which sucks. Well, they
0: still, Havner still tries to use it he and he still does about get it, to though. talk to me He gets to read the confession. The judge right. lets him which read the confession. Which is weird to me it is to me too but it was i think it was presented with the idea that the defense was objecting to it but mm-hmm. the judge let them read it in but really the the confession says nothing right it is the worst you said it wouldn't hold up today. No, it would he, never hold up it. today. And I can't believe that this took from 1030 at night till four o'clock in the morning to get that weak ass confession right. because it's just lunatic rambling. Yeah. And there's no way that, that it could pass muster today. Yeah. Because it offers no details. There's no details that, that Kelly couldn't have got out of the newspaper. And he gets it wrong. Right. Anyway, because. He said it killed the kids first. Yeah, he first, says it killed the, the parents, kids first. And, and the parents, there's no way that could have happened. And, you know, I mean, there's some funny stuff when they're summing it up where the guy says, well, you know, this guy says this. And, you know, if you listen to him, then, you know, the murders never happened at all. And, you know, there's some funny stuff in the summations and stuff. But overall, this is just a bad case. I mean, it it was built on the idea that Havner and probably Favell, probably all of the prosecution, honestly believed he was guilty. And trust me, he looked guilty. And he confessed to it how many times. I mean, he was telling people for years he was involved in the murders. If he wasn't telling him he was a detective investigating the murders, then he was saying that he committed them, Yeah, you know, and he had these, 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 which is, which is where, Wow. Well, and again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when we get to that part of the, this season, in just a couple of episodes, as we start to wrap things up, Kelly's telling stories about hearing the sounds of the axe and hearing what sounded like someone hitting a dead pig. Right. And they, I mean, it's really graphic, gruesome. He was there. And <laughs> he was there. I mean, Kelly was nearby, was, you know, outside the house when these things were happening. He's a window peeper. Right. Man, I'm giving away the story, but everybody's um, heard most. It, they might have heard some of it, but I don't want to give too much away, but I'm just telling you, you know, Kelly had just enough information to make himself look bad. Right. Um, but this confession was a joke. I mean, there's no way that this was a real confession. That's
1: why I feel like if it, back then if I had heard this, after so many confessions and noticing how crazy this guy was, I would just do one test. You, you juke him one time in the jaw. <laughs> and if he starts crying, then he'd be like, no, because yeah. he's, so, he's a tiny guy. And they even yeah, talk I about just, could I just, I know, trying to swing. Stuff. I mean,
0: yes, technically he could have. He, he was, I mean, the swing was enough with the length of his arms and the length of the axe. But he cries so but, much. I couldn't I mean, this it. guy, you know, weighs 120 pounds soaking wet. He's five foot two. And I'm going to say, I don't think he could have made the swings that were necessary to kill all those people that were in the that house quickly, that night. Yeah. You know, um, not the least of which, if we want to go back in time and you've got all these murders that are, you know, we, we're forgetting about that part. Right, of it. We've been talking right. about Velisca for so long. As if it's an isolated. Right. Incident. We're forgetting about all the other murders that happen that are identical yeah. to what happened at Velisca. And we can't connect Reverend Kelly to any of that. Right. We can't connect any of our known suspects to any of that. Yeah, he'd be confessing to all of those. Exactly. (laughs) That's the thing. But they're, they are worrying about with this case, they're leaving out all that stuff. You know, they're fine tuning it. They're focusing on this. And I think that, I mean, I honestly feel that, and based on the letters that were written and I've read the letters that were written back and forth Mm -hmm. between Havner and the other lawyers and investigators, he honestly believed Kelly was guilty. But he couldn't prove it. There's no way to prove it, not with the material and the evidence that he had, as he found out, because the jury comes back and cannot return a verdict. I mean.
1: Right, right. And so, so. Even with the the stern hand of Judge Boise, courtroom disruptions frequently occurred, and there were there were basically four points of the prosecution: the confession, the knowledge of the murders beforehand, the bloody shirt, and that he was a pervert. The biggest issue was that, regardless of the evidence, it's all circumstantial. Exactly, it's all yeah. circumstantial. It's hard for people in a small town. You, you mentioned this. The biggest issue is that, regardless yeah. of the evidence, it's hard for people in small town Iowa during the early and we've talked about this through the entire season to conceive of do anyone doing their that? heads
0: around this. They can't, and that, and that makes sense. You because know, it's needs such a to brutal be this thing. mysterious boogeyman, right? You know, and. Even Even if you wanted to believe it was Frank Jones, there were a lot of other people involved. So these were people playing a very small part in this. It wasn't Frank Jones going into the Morehouse and killing people. You know, so it was a lot easier for people to accept that. And they couldn't do that even with somebody as creepy and pervy as Reverend Kelly. They right. just couldn't do it. And I'm,
1: I'm not going to read all of this, but there's just one paragraph. You you mentioned, Havner believed that the preacher had left the Ewing home that night and had walked to the Moore House, saw a light in the bedroom window on the first floor, and watched the cylinder girls getting undressed for bed. Either as he was walking up to the window or leaving it, he stumbled onto the axe. He heard voices. God was talking to him. As he stood in there in the yard, his insanity overwhelmed him. He entered the house carrying the axe, found a lamp, and lit it, and took from room to room, killing everyone inside. This was Havner's theory, and you said, Yeah, you believe it's almost exactly what happened it that is. night except for the fact that kelly was not the one who it wasn't the kelly axe. doing
0: the murdering right but i do think he well we'll get to that later and he goes into way so, more detail with yeah, that i just didn't want to read it because it's upsetting yeah, we just, and it's yeah, we just did yeah.
1: so yeah so. so let's let's jump into Kelly's trial a little bit here. Uh, begins with the witness to back up uh, his obsession with the murders and his knowledge of them early on. A lot of people knew that because he, he talked about them right. way sooner than right. he you know should have known. Um, even though the confession was thrown out, like I said, they could still talk about it. Habner reads all of it to the jury while Kelly sobs. I don't imagine the person that committed all these murders ever sobbing, ever no, probably me crying. Me either. Um, and he cla- again, he claims that he killed the children first and then the parents. Uh, have a joke, insert joke about Abraham and Isaac here, but I won't. I did that. <laughs> um, the doctors seem can't seem to agree about testimonies and kind of cancel each other yeah, out. Yeah.
0: I mean, they all want to say yes, he's crazy, but when he made his confession, because that's what they're gonna say. Yeah. When he made his confession, he was of sound mind. Well, you're either crazy or you're not. And, sure. You know. The, the confession is, is some weak stuff anyway. Yeah. And I think that he was just, I think Havner was getting desperate at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole point of the, the confession in
1: the first place. 100%. Okay, uh, so the defense uses Wilkerson's conspiracy to try and prove Kelly was innocent. He co- they call in the usual suspects whose testimony have yeah, been proven God. false by Sane a recent people. grand jury. Yeah. But
0: that's the problem is that all these other juries don't know about... Right, they don't the, know what happened at the last... was like the grand jury who didn't know about what was said yeah. at that grand jury, but then the jury at the slander trial didn't hear that all of this had already been you know thrown out, yep. and this is the same thing all over again. Right. So Laura Kelly's called to the stand, and at first, you even even kind of painted her as like
1: a sympathetic character and yeah, the more i weird. read into it the weirder the shit yeah, she's got. just weird too yeah they're both weird yes and she said yeah you mentioned said that uh, her and husband never had quote normal sexual relations and i was like <laughs> what does this I, mean? I don't know i don't, I don't, don't, don't want to think about I it anymore i don't want to
0: think about it yeah exactly
1: yeah uh defense kind of starts to claim oh he's too tiny to have done it and we talked about he physically yeah. Probably could have but a but he did. He? He no, didn't I don't do think it. so. Um, and then, last thing I have closing argument highlights. So, Hess goes over some graphic yeah, details. Yeah, which of the went crime. on for
0: a long time. But yeah. I just thought ours. the highlights would be, you know, just like, a few fun quotes like. Sure. Not only is like his own attorney says that Reverend Kelly's not just a nut. He's a carload of nuts. And I thought, well, that's a great attorney. (laughs) It's beautiful.
1: (laughs) And then whether it's real or not, Sutton begins to cry while giving Kelly's closing statement. And then Kelly starts to cry.
0: That's some Clarence Darrow
1: stuff. Right. And Havner ends up concluding his nearly three hour (laughs) summarization (laughs) with one grim thought. Gentlemen, you're standing between this man and society. He has told you that he does not want to be turned loose. I am now done. My duty has been performed. I've, I've done the best that I could. And he's kind of just like, look, like I, I didn't do a great job, but like,
0: don't let this guy yeah, out Yeah, I know it. I, I, I hated that. It was his last line yeah. was I did the best I could. And you really, I mean, you I, shouldn't,
1: you should end on a confident yeah, note. That was you know? not,
0: that was not a good plan. Because
1: he's right that one, he shouldn't be let out into society, but two, like you don't,
0: yeah, he should, you, this don't is want all wrong. you don't want to say that Yeah, this is
1: yeah. all wrong um, Confidence is king um, So anyway, the, ju- <laughs> the jury sent out to deliberate on the afternoon of Wednesday, September 26 Four hours, um, their first ballot comes out It's 11 to 1, acquittal versus reason of insanity uh, They it never me- changes Yeah, they asked to be released the next day the Judge is like, no And then on right. Friday afternoon, after 21 ballots And more than 44 <laughs> hours of deliberation The judge is like, alright, you guys can yeah. be done The trial is, it's a hung jury uh, the defense team celebrated never believing the prosecution
0: would go through all of it again. But they did. But the pursuit yeah. of Reverend
1: Kelly was not yet at an
0: end. Yeah. And that's where we'll they, pick up. Yep, yeah, They weren't well into or ready to ready and willing to let it go yet. So not quite yet. Uh, we'll hear a little more about that. Not so much because it's essentially the same trial over. again. Right. But there's a lot of moving parts in our next episode, which essentially you can kind of look at is our last Episode of the story, because the next one will kind of finish off a lot of things uh, with the suicide, the end of Wilkerson and what happened to pretty much everyone else involved in this case um, and and what happened next. Um, And then we'll get into uh, a little grittier episodes uh, a really, a really gruesome episode followed by a ghost episode. So right. we are reaching the end of the season. So hang in there for the next episode because there's some, there's some more good stuff coming. So, so does
1: anybody, I mean, and obviously don't give spoilers away, but I mean,
0: Mansfield, does, does anyone have a happy ending? I mean, his, his kind of was. Right. You I know, mean, I mean, and, that's what I'm, that's some what I of mean. them are, you know, I mean, they moved on with their lives. Um, but, you know, there's not, this is not a story, this is not a story with a happy ending, because really, essentially, doesn't have an ending. Well, if I'd have because known that, I would murders, have never signed on. I know, right? The murders have still never been solved. Right. We went into that, everyone knowing that. Um, that it, they haven't been solved. I don't care what you've read somewhere or, you know, read about a suspect. What it's the locals not still say. Yeah, to this we're about day, what right? the locals still say. Who still, there are people I know and, you know, have known in Velisca who still think Frank Jones had something to do with it. Crazy. Um, because their families years ago were, you know, Wilkerson supporters. Yeah. And so they don't want to hear any different. You know, people refuse sometimes to see the truth or to see, you know what's right in front of them and they ignore it and you know um it doesn't matter how many times they're lied to or how many times someone's caught in a lie or you know what ridiculous information they're given people still swallow it. Yeah. And it's the same then as it is now. I mean, we still see that same thing kind of going on today. So, sure. there you go. Yeah. So. I'm very curious too if anyone
1: uh diagnoses very random probably rare if anyone lives in Villisca or has ever lived there or anything or knows people from there yeah. like tweet at us send us yeah, an email no, I'd be very I, curious I know to see some the people, but current I, yeah, state I,
0: I'd love to hear some current stuff yeah. we were there a couple months ago right you know yeah, I had a buddy yeah. mention like, comment the other day. he goes is this place in Iowa he's like I was yeah. there the other night I was yeah, like yeah, yeah it was yeah
1: it is it's now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a comment or question about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. So this email comes to us from Bree. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And it's titled The Eldred House says, I live in Wood River, just outside of Alton, Illinois. Thank you, I know, but for our listeners I might not know. And uh, I've heard some legends about the local paranormal locations. These stories have always piqued my curiosity, so I decided I'd do some research on a few locations. This rabbit hole of research uh, led me to American Haunting's website, which led me to immediately booking a spot on a ghost hunt for myself and my husband. I went on an American Haunting's ghost hunt at the Eldred House last Saturday. It was the first time I've ever done anything like it at all. i have never been to a haunted house, nor had I ever taken part in a paranormal investigation. I didn't consider myself to be a true believer in the paranormal, but I also didn't consider myself to be a skeptic I went into it with a very open mind and I was interested in the history of the house And if I happened to encounter any spirits or energies, that would just be a plus All I'm gonna say is that the ghost hunt made a believer out of me I felt and saw some inexplicable things beyond that. I had such a great time while it was certainly a bit frightening And I did cry and freak out at times. <laughs> I'm sorry. I truly had a blast I plan on going on another ghost hunt this October to welcome spooky season being on the American Hauntings website led me to your podcast. At the time I subscribed, there were about 60 episodes, and I'm getting through them awfully quick. Judging from the titles alone, it doesn't well, look
0: Well, we've only had 49. Well, there's <laughs> a bunch of bonus yeah, and like we've I, done well, a, there weird is a lot of stuff. Bonus stuff I, I think right. that's what it that is. That makes sense. Because yeah. I think
1: we've done like 70 episodes. Oh, okay. But, but they're for like the, like, the legit Halloween seasons. movie yeah, stuff and all that okay, stuff. Gotcha. I know. It's weird. Confuse like, me 48, too. 48, 49. Just so. judging from the titles alone, it doesn't look like there's an episode that's been done on the Eldered House. Would you consider including this location in a future episode? So
0: thank you for your time, Bree. What do you think? Yeah, it's um it's actually in my book, Ghost of the Prairie. Okay. Uh, that I did. I do a really in-depth history of the Eldred House, uh, which is a cool location. Yeah. Um it's a neat, you know, very remote. It's kind of located outside of Carrollton. Um there's a town called Eldred, but I mean it, I don't maybe like a hundred people. I don't know how many people live yeah. there. but it's very small, but it's outside of Carrollton. And uh it is a neat house. It's a an old um, early Illinois stone house built from, you know, river rocks mm-hmm. down along the river kind of thing. It's down in the, the bottoms around near the Illinois river and that kind of thing. It's a neat location. Um, so yeah, I don't know if it'll someday it may make it into a podcast, but if you're interested in more history about it, you can get it, um, in my book, ghost of the Prairie. There's a really long chapter about the Eldred house in there. Nice. So, well, I've got actually got a, a a tweet that I wanted to that made oh, me laugh. Okay. Um, right, it's please. very short, but uh, I thought it was very funny. Hans um, Pod by the way. Yeah, it tweet was somebody who tagged um Cody and I and the the podcast uh in uh, in this tweet and it was for it was just 4 days ago from when we were recording okay. that. But it was um from Claire um and she's at Miss Claire Lego. And she said that I am living and she put living in capital letters for the American Hunting's podcast bloopers. So uh, I just thought that was funny. It just, it caught my, I caught my eye made me laugh. Um, We've had some, you know, we've had a lot of good interaction with a lot of people on Twitter. Um, Even before I think you started the, you know, when it was just our own, we had a lot of people, yeah, we, we put up one for our, you know, that was just for the. The uh, podcast, sure. But it's been a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of people have tweeted at us telling us that, you know, their favorite series was The Limp Family right. and that kind of stuff. And that's where we you know, ended up with, um, well, we ended up with our, our book about the Kansas murders yes. and stuff, um, you know, and she had tweeted at us. And uh, of course, you know, as I'm reading that, I'm not putting it together that Diana was the one who wrote she the book. Here. I still well, can't believe I did she, that. Well, that's the thing. She didn't and I had that herself. book. No, she didn't. And I'd had that and book that classy. a couple of years before, well, actually several 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 years before she even sent it to us and I gave you a copy and uh, I didn't see that Diana had been she would been had been tweeting about it and she had sent that to us and uh, sent us a copy of her her book, which I keep needing to. Keep saying I know, I know, Diana's
1: it's Diana's actual book. We spent a couple of days like messaging yeah, back
0: and forth to about at that. And, it, and I had no it idea. It was literally sitting here on the table as we were recording. And I'm yep. like, oh, crap. Diana it's wrote book. this book. So, it's a, yeah, it's a great book. Check so, it out. Shadow on a Hill, I believe is what yes. it's called. Yes. And it is a good book. If you get a chance, it's about an axe murder, uh, but one in Kansas. And it's not connected to these because, um, again, like I said at the very beginning of this, you know, axes were like a number one murder weapon at a sure. you know, certain point in American history. So there are a lot of them out there. Uh, but, uh, that's a, it's a really great book. So I'm, I'm plugging her again. So Perfect. just because I can. Yeah. and so. No, I mean, it's so
1: much fun now. Like people can email us, they can tweet at us, they can hit us yeah. on Instagram and like, yeah, it's fun. we're accessible and anybody else is accessible sure. too. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and regarding the bloopers, like I have things <laughs> <laughs> that could ruin
0: Troy. Yeah, <laughs> no, they no, couldn't. they
1: couldn't. They're just bad. I have like the most creative combination yeah, of I curse words of that, you've ever so, heard. That's you know, that's what I mean. I have a lot uh, him of that. yelling at motorcycles that drive by when he's oh, trying to record God. monologues and yeah, stuff. It's brutal. Um, it's great, but yeah, I keep putting the bloopers in there because I think it's funny and I want to show it's you. Fun. I want to show but you that fun. like this is just yeah, us kind fun. of you it's know a
0: good Having a good time. That's what the whole point of the podcast was. Absolutely. Anyway, all right. Well, I guess we should wrap this up because this is now our longest episode ever. I took a nap Um, in the middle. Yeah, it was. uh, This was a long one. So, guys, thank you again for listening. Uh, We are, as I said it before, we are nearing the end of the season. So thank you for sticking with us. Uh, Leave us a review somewhere. Put it on iTunes because that's where everybody sees it. And um, and that helps keep moving things along so we are always appreciative of that uh, hope to see you at some of our events this fall uh, that we've got coming up and you know then we'll have dead of winter then we'll have the conference we'll have all kinds of stuff so uh, hopefully we'll get to see a lot of you in the upcoming weeks and months ahead and so from me this is Troy Taylor and I'm signing off for Cody Beck where this is the end we're not doing anything this episode today. of American Hunting's <laughs>
1: podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited painstakingly by me Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history so this and This doesn't hauntings. stop
0: if I stick my fingers in you my ears. You can learn more correct? about just, our podcast and it. find
1: new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast Turn apps by searching for already. American Hauntings. Or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books, information about upcoming tours, events, haunted happenings, and all those bloopers I was talking about. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. Which we could have just said in the beginning. eh? And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have Wish that. We had a longer you have ending the chance to, the to support show. the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like I mean, what no you one find hears at that. find patreon.com slash American Hauntings, right? So thank you, Patreon New stuff. People. Thank you. You can also find your hosts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Troy, anything else? No, I'm done. We're Until all done. Until next time. Done. done, done, done. Goodbye. So long. See you later.